Bonjour, film lovers. Did you know that you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio? We also have a website, realnerdspodcast.com, where you can find cool articles and other ways to listen to the podcast. You can also follow us on social, Facebook at Real Nerds Podcast, and Twitter and Instagram at Real Nerds. You can also call us at 720-6-NERDS-5. We will listen to it, we will play it, and we will probably commentate on it. Also, email us at realnerds at gmail.com. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast, where for 10 years we've gone to see a new movie and podcasted our experience of the world. This week we saw Ghostbusters Afterlife. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where we will review it uh, generally, and then after the trailer we will spoil it for the audience and go more in depth. With me this week is Zach. Cats and Dogs Living Together Mass Hysteria Reboot. And Corinne. Hello, everybody. And finally, back in the room with us is Henry. Meatballs, meatballs, meatballs. <laughs> I remember that from Ghostbusters. No, that's his catchphrase from his new sitcom, um, Hanging with Henry. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I like it. Uh, yeah, Ryan's a little busy this week, so it's just the four of us. Um, and he will call in his review at some point. This is this is like a this is like a secret pilot for real nerds the next generation where we have like you have one person from the original show and then the rest of the new crew. <laughs> I'm like Zordon's floating head in Power Rangers and you're my Power Rangers. Can Henry be Alpha? Because I want him to go ay 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 ay. Ay Perfect. I like this reboot. It's only been what three years since the last one? I think Saban is going to definitely uh, buy us. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome because they're filthy rich. Yep, but they can't uh, apparently do a wide release for Jay and Silent Bob reboot. So just saying. Hey, what are well, we doing? This? So much money on the first Power Rangers movie. So. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> what do we do on this show? Well, uh, we talk about movie news. We go, do go down the list of new. 4k blu-ray releases uh we talk about what we've been watching and i guess we'll start with that news no wait let's talk about what people have been up to henry what have you been up to you've been off this this show for a while well i found myself in the mountains uh (laughs) why (laughs) i was trying to find myself vision quest it was a vision quest if you will interesting uh yeah i have found myself i have realized that i am in fact a god uh oh. we are all gone and i feel like this is my new religion that i've decided i'm going to found i guess uh the whole you know filmmaking thing it's been a struggle so i've decided the alternative route i'm going to go is the cult route mm. uh so uh cool. i have bought a compound and if you would look <laughs> if you would like to attend the compound seminar i host it every saturday uh 7 a.m to 4 p.m uh, is the introductory class am and, i allowed uh, to show up late as long as you show up before noon, noon is when we start like getting into like the real heavy duty stuff. Oh, okay, gotcha, but gotcha, gotcha. That's basically starting a cult is basically what I've been up to recently. Oh, okay. Uh, gotcha. 
beyond that, uh, I've just been, you know, getting through. I have a screenplay that is winning or is final you, finaling in places. Yeah, so. you you've made it to second rounds in uh, Austin Screenplay Fest. Yeah, so, that, so that was, that's been my trying to get an agent. Which, or if there's any agents out there who are very interested in a screenwriter, you know, hit me up. <laughs> yeah. You know. Hey, if you need any testimonial, I've read the script that you've submitted, and it is fantastic. Well, thank you. It is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a rough read, but it, but in terms of its content, but it is a glorious piece of screenwriting. Thank so, you. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I'm glad you're here, and you also recorded a ballyhoo. I did. Yeah, you recorded one on M. Oh my God, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about cross promotion these days, Brad. I don't, I don't, Brad, I don't want to hear it. I'll see him. <laughs> I don't hear him talk about real nerds a ton on his episodes. I do. I mention you guys all the time. <laughs> what are you talking about i guess i mentioned ryan the most because he likes golden age hollywood (laughs) you you mentioned us you don't advertise the entire show that is what am i chopped liver i like golden age hollywood yeah i know corinne i need to get you in the room i'm sorry (laughs) i mean maybe i am not as knowledgeable in it as you and brian are but it's not like i don't like it Oh, no, believe me, it is not because I don't think you'd be a great guest. It's just because I have the most forgetful brain on planet Earth. <laughs> and it's coming out in stride the last couple of months. Um, but, yeah, no, Henry and I did one on M from 1931. So, yeah, he was it was fun to see him again in person. So um, I think it's been what, like a couple of months? Uh, yeah, probably around that. Yeah. Yikes. That's crazy to think about. Um, but, yeah, no. I'm glad you're here, buddy. Thank really you. Am. Glad you're here for the holidays. Uh, Zach, speaking of Zach, what do you what have you been up to this week? What have I been up to this week? Um, finalizing some stuff for the new short film, Heavy Hangs the Sky. Uh, uh, recording a few more ballyhoos before I pack it in for the year. Um, and I have started making headway on my research for the Jack Benny book. Um, and I found out some stuff about Jack's film career that I didn't expect to come across. Um, primarily, it seems that Jack held up an entire production and nearly uh, forced a studio to lose one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So, uh, so we learned about all the CD dark, unmentioned parts <laughs> of his past. Is that what you're saying? No, it's 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 not that. But like you know how today when we have like sometimes like a production will fall through, like we have something all set to go and then suddenly just the entire thing goes kaput because some factor doesn't click. And then like a bunch of money is lost with development. You don't say this, this almost happened with one of his films and there was a standoff for 15 hours before the studio just finally acquiesced to his demands. And I don't know the full reasons for every single thing, but I've seen the movie that they ended up making and I want to know what it was before they did the rewrites. Cause it's a fun movie, but it's not a great movie. Now I'm just imagining Jack Benny locked in his office with like hostages and a gun. <laughs> Give me what I want. <laughs> Jack, we couldn't find you any, any of the writers you requested. We did find some, we did find something even more wonderful. And they just bring in Frank Nelson. And he goes, yes, now cut that out. And then, See, that's a Benny reference for people. You listen to the show, you'll understand. But um, but yeah, no, it's I I mainly I just find it interesting because you know, you, we don't think of all the times that some productions are held up, not just because of being scripts being turned down, but also like 
in the middle of production as things are starting to click before something just goes off the rails and nearly all the money is lost. And so like, I just didn't expect to come across that in Jack's camp. So um, it, it, it honestly answers a couple of questions that I've had, but um, so it's been fun to kind of get into that and research that a little bit. Um, and um, if I can, I guess I can announce this now. Um, if this episode goes out on time, I will be on it won't. a, oh, it won't. Okay, fine. Then you will have already heard me on the glowing dial live, uh, with John Matthews, where we'll be DJing some old time radio and speaking with, uh, John Goodman, the son of Dickie Goodman, who was the, uh, innovator of the break, uh, the breakaway records uh, the, where they would like intersplice media clips in between like, um, uh, like interviews and stuff like that, like gag records and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, just uh, look out for that. Yeah, I don't think an episode has gone out on time in like two months mm. for this podcast. I'm sure it has. We just don't remember it. <laughs> just constantly like two weeks behind. Corinne, what have you been up to? Um, well, I'm sure Brad talked about it already, but I helped him make a short film a couple weeks ago. So that was yeah. a good time. Got to, you know, lie on the ground in a shitty alleyway off of Colfax at one o'clock in the morning. So, you know, just living the dream over here. I'm pretty tough on my actors. Yep. <laughs> um, and then, you know, just working, you know, early deadlines and holidays and everything. So trying to work around that. And then today I was babysitting my niece and she was having a blast. And I like showed her how the Grinch stole Christmas and um, what else? Oh, Mickey's Christmas Carol and things like that. So she was having a good time. So when you showed her how the Grinch stole Christmas, did you go through every step of the Grinch's plan in describing how the Grinch stole Christmas? Well, thankfully there's narration so that it explains itself. Ah, that is true. It is a really good instructional video. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't think she really understood what was going on. It was just more, I mean, she's like almost two. So it's more of Uh, just like bright colors and cute faces and lots of singing and she was awesome. She loves the Aristocats. So she was watching that. I, we were watching that and she started singing along to everybody wants to be a cat. I'm like, oh, this kid has good taste. <laughs> you, know, you know why? Because when you have Phil Harris singing as a cat, every child is addicted to that. It's 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 like it's to not to use a bad uh, comparison, but it's ki- catnip for a kid, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's just it's. It's funny you say that, you know, Phil Harris, because he is also in Robin Hood and the Jungle Book as mm-hmm. voice actors. Yep. And she loves those two movies as well. So my friend, her mom, was like, What is the deal here? Like, does she just love Phil Harris or something? It's like the but she also loves 101 Dalmatians. I think she just likes seeing like cute animals on screen. Gotcha. And well, babies. She-, she also really likes babies because I showed her the Pixar short bow which is mm-hmm. the one where the little dumpling like kind of turns into a kid and she yeah. loved that we had to watch it like four times in one night oh. uh, bow is actually really adorable here's oh how my you gosh, t- yeah. here's how you I, test I don't think f- she gets it though uh, yeah well I mean give her time though let's see she's only two but I mean it's just a cute uh little dumpling child here's how you test the Phil Harris thing though I'll send you an episode of the Phil Harris Alice Faye show and play it and if she's addicted to that voice then we know it's a phil harris addiction okay we'll have to do that the next time i babysit her oh yeah no yeah kids love phil harris they also love frankie remley 
He does have a great voice. Like he is one of the better voice actors that Disney had in that era. Him and Jar Jar Gabor. It's, she, it's, she did a good job too. Yeah. It's funny that like Phil Harris is a voice that as it exists, nobody can really imitate it. I know they did for Tailspin um, with um, where Baloo is a pilot, mm-hmm. but it's never sounded quite the same. And I think it's, I've equated that like he's one of those voices that is very like difficult or almost impossible to imitate. Like you can't truly capture the same inflection he's doing it because it's it's sort of a southern drawl, but it's also like a hepcat. So it's kind of like it's it's two different things kind of meshing into its own unique thing. Um, and so like I, I I've genuinely tried to figure out like who could have do- who could do it, and I don't have an answer. Um, it's why when they did. Um, the remake with Favreau, I was very happy that they just cast Bill Murray to do it because I was just like, yeah, just make it a different kind of bear. Don't need to make it a Phil Harris bear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you spoke of a film that you made with Brad. That leads us to Brad. What have you been doing? I've been just uh, cleaning up my files from that that project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting from I, I put down the, tr- the teaser today. Um, and I think depending on how things shake out, we might be able to start inviting people to watch it online on Monday. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. Not everyone gets to be part of that. So, Uh, so it's like, um, is it like, uh, so it's not like the regular 48 hour. Yeah. And it's a worldwide competition. And I think attendance is down this year, but there's still 59 teams. Hmm. Um, I think they have to whittle it down to certain a certain number and then place them in certain groups. Gotcha. Um, and then that elite squad of groups will get like a screening on a event bright, I think, or something. I forget, oh. I forget, I forget the, the hosting thing is for video for them. Do we know of any film competition that puts you guys in the octagon and you have to fight each other with grip equipment? Uh, I think that's slam dance. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why they call it slam dance. I thought they were just trying to be edgy. Yeah. (laughs) Really positioning themselves to be uh, different than Sundance as much as possible. It's not as fun as trauma dance and trauma dance. You get to get puked on and that's a cool thing. Brad, did you ever find out if there were other teams from Denver? Because I know we saw like that one group filming along Colfax, and we were like, they're not in the same project, are they? Uh, yeah, there's seven other teams. Um, I know one wasn't obviously wasn't filming on Colfax; they just filmed at home. But yeah, there's there's seven teams in our time zone. In our time zone, I mean, that could be anybody. Yeah, well, I know there's at least one other team that's actually from Denver because they screen at the bug often for EFP. I so. see. There's at least one, but yeah, I, you're right. The other six could be Wyoming or New Mexico. Or Canada. Or Canada. Or oh. even Mexico. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what New Mexico, about... Old Mexico. Hmm. The North Pole or the South Pole? Maybe even Chile. South mm. America. Ooh. Yeah, I'm not sure what all is in mountain time and you know the southern hemisphere. Maybe even Paris. Ooh. Oh, we in know per- that's not in our time zone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even an artistic class, though. <laughs> we could have Ooh. had Paris. 
Hey, hey, don't worry. We'll always have Paris. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure Paris, Texas is probably central time. Hmm. Hmm. Good call. That's a good smart joke. <laughs> it's also a movie. Congratulations. Yes, it is. Yeah. Corinne wins. Yay. Feeding out the Bogart and um, Henry's casual mention of Mexico. <laughs> we all had a quip. <laughs> and Corinne won. Uh, yeah. Um, that takes us to the movie news. It's real news. All righty. What the so, hell happened this week? Um, not a lot that I saw, unless you guys have things to report. The one big thing that I saw was that uh, Cinemark was putting uh, theater chains on notice, going like, "Why not carry Netflix films?" Um, so basically, they're trying to make bigger, make more deals with Netflix and kind of calling out the other distributors. So. But does Netflix even want that though? I mean, I think Netflix wants the theaters to do what Netflix wants them to do because yeah. Netflix wants to play a power game, which is stupid. But they are technically making more money than movie theaters. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. Like, I would love to start seeing more Netflix movies in a theater because it would be fun to watch movies in a theater. Um, I feel like we get a bunch of them, like the landmark ones and Alamo usually have. Netflix features in them, but they but they're putting out more movies than just the ones that you see every so often at Landmark. It's like like if Red Notice or something would yeah Red Theater or something. Yeah, I mean Army of the Dead went to the Landmark theaters for a little while. How many people are really going to Landmark and Alamo theaters? I mean, I think most people are going to Regal or AMC, right? Yeah, and that's but the thing is, and Cinemark's but Cinemark's also a huge chain. Like it's not a small potato chain. Like it does have a plenty of locations and given which, whatever location you're going to, it's actually very affordable prices, but AMC doesn't want to cooperate with them and neither does Regal. So that's why if they get screened at all, it's like for a second, um, you know, when um, uh, AMC does their best picture showcase, they cleverly slash not cleverly omit all Netflix films. So if Netflix has a best picture nominee in the race, it will not be playing at that marathon. So like uh The or the Irishman was out. They they excluded that from the entire deal. So which is it's like one a year now. So yeah, it's not a best picture. Yeah. I don't know what the Academy's like structure is on trying to limit how much really gets exposure from the streaming services, but I do feel like at this point with the shifting market happening and the studios caving to dual releases anyway, I think theaters unfortunately have to just start taking what they can get. Um, because I'm, I'm and in a sense, I hate to say it, but if they don't keep making superhero movies, there won't be a reason for the movie theaters to keep financially afloat because I, I do believe that people will go see a good movie if they want to, but box office numbers aren't really suggesting that, especially even even with the biggest releases like i didn't realize like henry had to remind me like james bond is one of the biggest grocers of the year but it's losing a ton of money because of how long it kept stood on that shelf you know so you know there's there's still a fallout from the pandemic in addition to a changing landscape 
I think they have to start taking Netflix at their at, at their at their beck and call because people might want to go. I don't think it has to be just superhero movies. I think it just you know the big blockbusters in general because Encanto made like seventy million dollars already. Yeah, no, I know. I I shouldn't have been generalizing that because it's not it's not an anti superhero brand by any stretch. It's just I point to that because that is the predominant genre that makes over a certain amount of money but any big franchise or disney itself is a franchise like Encanto is a franchise film because it's coming from disney animation studios which consistently puts out that same quality um so i agree it is the high budget it is the blockbuster like those are the things that'll still keep the theaters afloat um i would Mm -hmm. hope it i would hope it's like if they can work with netflix it means they'll get they may get still to get blockbuster films, but they're blockbuster films that aren't necessarily tied to a franchise. So like, I I frankly didn't really have much interest in red notice, but I'd like to see something that's not necessarily tied to a franchise. So maybe I'll give it a shot, but you know, I'm also aware that those franchises have kept, kept the theaters going for a little while, especially as theaters have started to reopen. So and I have to imagine that Matrix is going to do some form of big business in a theater because I don't think nobody wants to just watch that on their TV. Yeah. Um, so have were any of the fucking HBO Max films successful, like financially at the box office? Godzilla really? versus Kong was pretty. There, yeah, that was pretty was good. A pretty good earner, yeah. earner. Yeah. Was there anything besides? I mean, but even that that was not impressive. No. Think, was there anything that was like a legitimate hit? So I'm looking at domestic box office for 2021 and top five are Shang-Chi, Venom, Black Widow, F9, and A Quiet Place Part 2. Mm-hmm. And then uh, six is No Time to Die, seven is Eternals, eight is Free Guy, nine is Jungle Cruise, and ten is Godzilla versus Kong. If you're looking worldwide, it's a very different list. Yeah. Well, not very different, but it is <laughs> because well, there are some... There's some films on here that I'm like, uh, what, what is that from? And it's like, you know, Chinese movies and things like no, that. The Chinese box office has been fucking insane this year. Yeah. And also, if you look at the worldwide box office, you'll see Avatars back on that list because they re-released it in China. Hell yeah. Us Avatar <laughs> stands are doing it. well. <laughs> none, of the, well. Uh, none of the Warner Brothers uh, movies have cleared 100 million. Godzilla came the closest, but yeah. most of them are hovering around the same 60 to 80 million range. Yeah. Which may suggest yeah. it is something tied to their streaming if they're all sort of attracting the same audience. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, well, Godzilla... I think they're not going to do it anymore either. So I'm I'm sure they're not making as much money as they want to. So they d- they just announced what? Well, they, I mean, they've announced that they're not going to do this whole same day streaming anymore. Uh, Warner so... Brothers did. Yeah, yeah. HBO Max is not going to do. No, next year they said they're not doing any same day streaming stuff. They're going to give HBO Max stuff a lot of original titles, but yeah. they're not going to do in theaters and streaming same day. I think that's um. That's too little, too late. But well, yeah. <laughs> it's almost as if you shouldn't have made that dumb decision that uh, made some of your directors jump ship. Pandora's box is open. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the future. <laughs> For the worldwide uh, highest grossing movies, Godzilla vs. Kong is number six with $467 million, And Dune is number 10 with $368 million. And both oh, yeah. of the Warner Brothers. Dune is, Dune is a pretty decent hit for them. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's why they were able to green light part two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, I'm still like confident. Like, I think in terms of the streaming service scenarios that aren't tied to a big studio, my big thing is, is that Netflix and Amazon 
for all the problems that I have with them in different respects, like, I'm sorry, I am susceptible to the fact that they're giving an untold amount of money to some of my favorite directors to do whatever they want. Yeah. So um, I, I somehow more have more respect for that than half of the, half of the mainstream titles that come through. Like I approve of most of those decisions with the exception of like Christopher Nolan getting a hundred million dollars to make a, an Oppenheimer movie, yeah. which is like, that's never going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> like no, no, none of the established old studios are going to do that ever again. No, yeah. This is a Nolan thing. This has nothing to do with a good story. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep our eye on it. See yeah. what happens. The only other big thing that I had really is, is that we got to look at the first five minutes of Jurassic world dominion. Uh, so we got an opening of the prequel. Um, I mean, it looks cool, I guess. Are you guys sick of Wait, dinosaurs yet? I've been sick of dinosaurs since Fallen Kingdom. Sorry. <laughs> it's a prequel? What? Is it a prequel? No, fr- no. It's it's like the... Um, it's just it's, the, th- the it's continuation the pro- third the, film. It's, it's, it's the third film, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's a prologue for it. Looks fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just didn't... It didn't throw me. I don't know if Fallen Kingdom just kind of like tempered my expectations of whatever Dominion's going to be, but um, yeah. Did anybody else see the Jurassic Park Dominion? <laughs> I did. I feel like I have the best Jurassic Park viewing experience because I've only ever seen the first one and none of the others. You should you should keep it that way. No, wait. Watch, I know. Uh, watch The Lost World Jurassic Park. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. And watch three. That has the bird dinosaur in it. I, the birdcage scene. That's scary. I agree. Yep. And it also has a dinosaur that yells out, Alan. <laughs> on a Ooh. Oh, you're right. I forgot. Was that the third one? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That, watch I mean, I've already that seen that for, from Honest Trailers. They mm-hmm. love using that clip. And I love that they use that. Um, Jurassic World is fine. I get it. Uh, Fallen Kingdom was taken with dinosaurs. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, Okay. Which should be more fun than it sounds. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. like. <laughs> if anything, it should have been taken by dinosaurs. Oh, hmm. the dinosaurs sell. Oh, God, can you imagine if Liam Neeson declares war on dinosaurs? That'd be the best movie ever. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. You guess- Netflix, I know you're listening. You can greenlit this project tomorrow. <laughs> like, I have a very, very, very specific set of skills. <laughs> Dinosaur skills. <laughs> They get Steven Spielberg on the phone. They're just like, look, we need a dinosaur movie. And we also need to capitalize on the umpteenth anniversary of Schindler's List. <laughs> I'm 70 years old. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I can't kick a T-Rex's ass. <laughs> and then Ray finds as one of the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but he's a dinosaur that can talk. <laughs> yeah. Um. And hey, we got him. connections over at Paramount now because they wanted us to pimp sh- uh, the Snake Eyes movie for them, right? We can just call them up. Paramount taken with dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, Universal's the Jurassic Park owners. Universal. <laughs> hey, they don't own dinosaurs. Anybody could have a movie with dinosaurs in it. I'm sorry, Corinne. You didn't read the latest trade reviews where Jason Blum bought the rights to dinosaurs. <laughs> We're gonna start you our mean, own franchise, Cretaceous Acreage. I don't know. <laughs> Cretaceous Acreage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, didn't Disney make a whole movie called Dinosaur? Yeah, but no or one was saw that a fever it, so dream. I did see that in the theater. I did see. Oh my gosh. Crustaceous- I want to that from my memory. Crustaceous Acreage. It has such memorable lines as hold on to your keister. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, from your DNA. <laughs> and uh, must speed up. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Greetings from Crustaceous Acreage. <laughs> it's just like it's the it's the asylum version of Jurassic Park. It seems like that should have happened multiple times already. You kept thinking if you should do it, but you didn't even consider if maybe that was a bad idea. The famous line that everyone knows. <laughs> The asylum one is just Dinosaur Park. Like that's <laughs> Dino- the name of it. Dinosaur Park. <laughs> Dino <Land. laughs> yeah, Dinosaur Land. Oh boy. Yeah, I was, I was trying to quote that line for the longest time and Henry Henry nailed it. No, I was just trying to figure what's the stupidest way possible to say that line. Yeah. Cool. All right, so that's all right. we're really off the rails uh, here. Uh, the, the last piece of news I thought would be a fun comic book thing is uh, Delroy Rin- Delroy Lindo is joining Mahershala Ali in the Blade movie, and that looks fucking cool. I like Delroy Lindo. Who here doesn't like Delroy John Lindo? Snow? I'll punch him. What? I said, uh, hopefully Jon Snow's going to be in it, right? Yeah, but he's not Delroy Lindo. Who that? Delroy Lindo is a star in such films as Clockers and most recently in Five Bloods. He's a great character actor that's been used for years and is finally starting to get some wonderful attention. That should have been coming to him years ago. He will be playing the titular sword that Blade wields. <laughs> Lindo Blade. Uh, it's unclear. Uh, it, uh, also unclear is Lindo's role. Um, although he's the first actor to board the project other than Mahershala Ali. I think it's going to be Squirrel Girl. I think that he'd be a good <laughs> casting for Squirrel Girl. Didn't they already make I'm a Squirrel a Girl on Disney Plus? Have, um, have they? Or is that like that animated hit monkey show that no one's watching? I feel like they did. They, they, the they announced the Squirrel Girl years ago oh, did and, they? Cast, and casted it, but never got around to making it. Oh, okay. So. I thought Such they is life. had a squirrel girl tv show on disney plus yeah maybe i don't know was it was anna kendrick the squirrel but i don't think it's called squirrel girl i think it's called like whatever the squirrel's name is rodent queen oh i think she she might be a part of like a a, like a team up series on disney plus that might be that makes sense uh anyway uh is that really the end of news now i mean as far as i can tell um let's talk about 4K Blu-rays. Hell yeah. DVD releases and Blu-rays. What's coming out this week, Zach? Well, um, there is a like a news item that ties into a release. Oh, fuck. Um, first of all... <laughs> it's never ending. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, Criterion's got some additional uh, 4K releases coming out, so you can get uncut gems in 4K. You can also get Menace to Society in 4K, courtesy of Criterion. And you can have also, also, of course, get Citizen Kane in 4K. Now, the quick caveat on that, and Henry alluded this to me yesterday, if you are picking it up, that first disc in the blue, um, on the Blu-ray side of things, not the 4K disc, but the first disc on the Blu-ray, has a contrast issue halfway through the picture. So Criterion is offering... Uh, a disc replacement along with a $10 Criterion gift card. So 
if you've bought your Citizen Kane 4K, which I did through Amazon, you are entitled to that replacement disc. So as a heads up for all of those people who were buying the Citizen Kane disc that weren't me, uh, just be sure to know that you have rights here. Um, uh, and then Kino Lorber is putting out Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 4K. Uh, this is the 1978 version with Donald Sutherland and Leonard, ne- Leonard Nimoy. Uh, so if you would like to <clears throat> indulge yourself in some wonderful remake goodness, this movie is up your alley. Uh, you can also get The Addams Family in 4K uh, with more Mamushka is the uh, proclamation on the title. You can also get Wes Craven's original 1977 hit, uh, The Hills Have Eyes in 4K. And coming off the presses from Scream Factory, we have Dracula, Dead and Loving It from 1995. The, as of now, final uh, directorial outing from Mel Brooks. But I have a feeling he'll direct one more thing before he leaves, because if he doesn't, I'll cry very hard. Um, And uh, we're also getting Terminator 2 Judgment Day in 4K. I feel like they've already put this out in 4K before, or am I just an idiot? It's a re-release with the same stuff. And there's a steel book at Best Buy that's pretty badass, but I, I know. But uh, <laughs> they haven't big... fixed the the image transfer, so it's kind of a moot point. Oh, so it's very much like the Citizen Kane of action movies, is what you're telling me. Uh, they just they messed up the image in it completely. Gotcha. Yeah, um, it's got heavy DNR scrubbing, and people mm. are upset that they're releasing it for like the third time on 4K without fixing it. Jesus, isn't it? It's based on the the 3D conversion done a few years ago, and they just I don't know, for some reason, won't bother fixing it. I have a question. If James Cameron's able to re-release Avatar um, uh, across the world to keep holding on to box office records, why can't he spend some money to fix this thing? Because this is something he holds a lot of rights to. Uh, apparently doesn't care enough about. Mm. He's too busy going to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to throw a, a bad transfer copy of T2 <laughs> down to the bottom of the ocean for him to find. He's searching for Gloria Stewart's ghost and also a uh, 4K copy of True Lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but we can also get Phantom of the Mall, uh, Eric's Revenge, uh, 1989 Arrow release. A guy called Eric owns a huge house and some greedy people want to build a mall over it. So they get someone to burn down his house. Eric is badly burned, but not dead. And a year later, <laughs> the mall is opened when they don't realize that Eric is living underneath the mall and he is very angry. <laughs> Man. It's like the most. Yeah, he's so angry that he lifts weights. <laughs> Fan I'm of the opera joking. book painting game. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, uh, you can ask the question, where's your Messiah now in 4K this time? Because you can get the Ten Commandments in 4K. You can get the 1923 version and the 1956 version, all in one amazing collection, uh, featuring such luminaries as Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, you're skipping over the best part there, bruh. Uh, no, I didn't skip over Edward G. Robinson. What are you talking about? Uh, no, the best part of that movie is Yul Brenner. Oh, yes. He's wonderful, too. But he doesn't say, where's your Messiah now? Which is the only line that I love in that movie. No. Um, but yes, also Cecil B. DeMille directs it, and he is a master director. He made a movie called Madam Satan, which is great, and people should watch that movie because it's out of its goddamn mind. 
Um, so yeah, pick up 10 commandments. If you'd like, you can also get the thin man goes home. Another entry in the wonderful thin man series featuring William Powell and Myrna Loy and Asta too. Uh, this time they are out to solve another mystery. You will have to tune in and find out what it is. Courtesy of Warner archive. Um, I am waiting until they put them all out and then I'm just going to buy them in a bulk. Um, so they don't like forgetting <laughs> to buy them. He's just so thin. <laughs> but he's a man <laughs> it's funny the thin man movies the first one is technically about a thinner man who gets mur- like, thinner man but then the rest of them have nothing to do with a thin man <laughs> they're just like ah oh, the thin man they know the thin man pictures that's about it um and uh Lull- lullaby of broadway from 1951 featuring doris day and gene nelson uh is getting released via warner archive um and we are getting la cage a full two uh from 1980 uh coming to you from code red um looks looks like that's about it um i don't see anything else that people are itching to know about yeah so i have an update to my earlier thing about the squirrel girl um so it is a movie called flora and ulysses on disney plus a 2021 American superhero comedy uh, based on a children's novel of the same name. And it's about a girl who has a squirrel who is a superhero. Oh, I guess. Cute. So it's not okay. actually Squirrel Girl, but it's kind of the same concept because it's like a girl and a squirrel and there are superpowers involved. So the way you say the way you say that is it's not the real squirrel girl, but an incredible simulation. Sure. Yes. Gotta be dramatic with it, man. Anyway, that's I'll, I'll leave that to you. Okay. <laughs> Acting. <laughs> and now for what we've been watching. So, uh, yeah, this is the stuff we've been watching. Henry, what have you been watching? Oh, well, you know, I've been watching. I've been trying to catch up on the 2020 releases. Or not 2020 releases. That was last year. Oh, my God. I've been trying to catch up on the 2021 releases. Watch Eternals today. That was great. I enjoyed that movie. Good. I watched No Time to Die. That was great. I enjoyed that movie. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed King Richard. And I enjoyed... That was the last movie I enjoyed. <laughs> um, but anyway... Wait, know. did you see something else that you didn't enjoy? Uh, probably. I'm just looking at my watch list. And yeah. But I'll, passing was fun. Spencer was... Well, Passing and Spencer were not fun. But they were they were very acceptable. They're, they're so, very they're very good. It's just it's yeah. hard it's hard to get super excited without realizing what they're about. Yeah, I like wait, going wait, what's to Paul passing. Moore. Passing is a new Netflix film directed by Rebecca Hall, which concerns uh, two uh, women who are passing in the 1920s. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's actually very 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 good. Uh, beautiful cinematography. Uh, I strongly recommend it if you're interested in a black and white. Uh, Academy ratio film about racism in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are you watching like this on streaming or going out? Yeah, Passing is a Netflix original film. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then I went out and saw Eternals and I rented no- I watched No Time to Die on a plane. Probably not the way they intended for me to watch that, but I watched uh, it on a plane. Uh, better than seeing snakes on a plane. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, and the only other film I thought I'd mentioned that I watched, I've been... Uh, Watch a lot of stuff on Criterion Channel, and one that I watched recently is The Swimmer. Uh, has anyone seen that? I never heard no, of I it. I feel like I've heard about this. Elaborate. Uh, the Swimmer is a 1968 uh, film directed by Frank Perry, 
uh, which stars Burt Lancaster, which basically the opening plot is that Burt Lancaster shows up to this dude's house yeah. in swim trunks and is like, I'm just going to swim through your pool. And they're like, that's fine. You're our favorite person ever. <laughs> uh, and then while he's swimming through that pool, uh, he realizes that if he like hops pools down the neighborhood, who will eventually end up back at his house. He was like, I'm just going to go home, but I'm going to swim through every pool in the neighborhood. And then he proceeds to do that. But the film then gets really weird and really sad and disturbing. Uh, it's the best way I can describe it is that it's sexy death of a salesman. Uh, and so <laughs> I think um, uh, Burt Lancaster said it was his, his favorite performance he's ever done. Uh, I strongly recommend it. It's a very interesting film. I, that's right. So it's Death of a Sexy Salesman. Hell yeah, it is. No, they just got the title wrong. I've heard of this movie, Henry. Now it's very good. Oh, okay. I think you would really like it. Is it um? Is it available on a physical, or is it only the streaming one? I'm not sure if it's available. I'm sh- I actually don't know. It mm-hmm. might be available on physical. I'm not positive. I need to get Criterion Channel because they are streaming stuff that doesn't have a physical release in this country. Yeah. <sighs> no, there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, just very, I'm not going to mention any of them, but uh, I they have like a massive segment section right this month on uh, Fox Noir films. Mm. Uh, and I, I recently watched, it was 12 films. And I watched all of them and they were, it's very, their curation is very, very good. Was one of them, I wake up screaming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh God, it's great, right? Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's the, it's the same, like one of the same Weasley guys from, um, uh, uh, the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah. bad guy at the, I, I'm trying to remember his name at the moment. Uh, uh, Elijah, um, uh, Elijah Cook Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. that's what I've been watching. Cool, Corinne. Okay, well, first off, we have a catching the classics that I did like right around Halloween, but through shenanigans or whatever, never got on the air. So we can go ahead and play that right now, Brad. Hey nerds, Corinne here for part 40 of Catching the Classics, where I watch famous and popular movies I've never seen before and send in my review. This week, it's kind of a doubleheader. (laughs) I watched a third of Ghostbusters, and then I watched School of Rock for the first time. Yeah, so I've never seen Ghostbusters, and I was invited to a friend of a friend's Halloween party, and they were watching Ghostbusters outside, and I only caught the last third of it. And given that I didn't have any context for what the hell was going on, um, I was just like, well, that's a thing that happened. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, it does make me want to watch the whole movie now so I know what is going on. I mean, I get they bust ghosts and there's like a big evil ghost that got a defeat or something, but I don't know, somehow like Sigourney Weaver was like possessed And then she maybe has sex with Rick Moranis to open, like, the gateway to hell or something over her apartment building. And then the city people turn off a thing and all these ghosts start popping out and terrorizing the city. And for some reason, only the Ghostbusters can stop this entire thing, I guess. (laughs) Um, my favorite part was when they like, you know, show up at the building and there's this like giant crowd of people outside, which I'm like, I thought the whole thing about New Yorkers was they literally don't give a shit about anything, (laughs) but okay. You know, like somebody could be like, you know, passing out on the sidewalk. They're like, "Eh, whatever. And they just step over him. Um, but yeah, everybody's like outside cheering, like, oh my gosh, the Ghostbusters. 
And then, you know, they're just, you know, taking in all the adulation, like, yes, 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 we love you all, uh-huh, uh-huh, we're gonna go save the day. And then the ground opens up, and it swallows all the Ghostbusters, and you're like, well, that's it, they're dead. <laughs> Movie over. Oh, no, wait, they're alive, damn it. <laughs> um, so that was pretty fun, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, I I, like I said, I do want to watch the full movie now, and especially with this, like, reboot sequel thing coming out. I guess I don't, I don't really have any interest in Ghostbusters as a franchise. Just something that's like, okay, that's fine if you all like it, but I've never seen it, so I don't care. So, can't give it a review, or a rating, because I didn't see the full thing, but, like I said, I'll watch it eventually in full one of these days. But just wanted to mention it. So then, this week, the actual movie I watched was School of Rock, and I think I've maybe caught parts of it on cable before, but never sat down and watched the whole thing all the way through, and oh boy, that movie is kind of cringe nowadays, with the whole, you know, Jack Black pretends to be a teacher, and tricks a bunch of kids into starting a rock band, and he's, like, lying to all of them. And it's not even like he's lying. It's like he is actively manipulating everyone around him. Like, he gets the principal drunk and starts playing Stevie Nicks songs to get her on his side and to get her to agree to the field trip. And he's, like, manipulative to his roommate and the parents and everybody. And it's like, if it wasn't played, If he wasn't played by Jack Black... This character would be just, like, immediate villain. Um, but, you know, Jack Black has that charisma, so he can kind of get away with it. At least more than most people would be able to. And, sorry, I just, it just really made the movie hard to watch for me. Um, I mean, yeah, the kids give great performances, and he has some funny bits in there about, like, you know, the different, like, history of rock and everything, but... Yeah, it was really awkward to watch this, like, grown man manipulating these children into doing the thing he wants them to do. And it's like, oof, that doesn't, that doesn't age very well. (laughs) So, gotta give it a lesser grade for that. But, you know, Jack Black turns in a great performance. He's clearly having the time of his life. And I can only imagine, like, the child actors must have been having such a hard time keeping a straight face. There were, like, a couple of really funny bits. Um, the one that stands out to me is when he's, like, once again, lying through his teeth. At least it wasn't his idea this time, but, you know, he's lying through his teeth to, like, the, uh, gig people, and he's like, oh, these kids, like, they're all sick with cancer or whatever, and you see the kids outside or, you know, they're just, like, sitting around and they look lifeless, and one of them's, like, just laying on the ground, and they're just coughing, and, and I'm like, oh, perfect. Now, I think, like, the real comedy of the, like, yes, some of it is coming from Jack Black and just hits, he's this super enthusiastic performance, like, you can tell he really loves, like, you know, rock and teaching and people about rock and talking about rock and roll and all this, and that definitely comes across in his performance. I just wish the character was more likable and not a complete villain. It's like, yeah, I get it. By the end of the movie, he's become less selfish and everything, but I'm like, you still did a whole bunch of illegal shit, and most of it involved children, so 
Let's not glaze over that, shall we? But anyway, I'd give it probably three stars. It's a movie that exists and has some funny bits to it. I wish they would, you know, that's a movie that honestly kind of deserves a remake in as much as, like, you could kind of take the same premise, but just instead of him being a liar, like, I don't know, maybe he just stumbles across these kids and they already, you know, they are already forming a band. And so then he just kind of, like, falls in with them. I don't know, something like that. But it's like you have a decent-ish premise, but just make it less problematic and cringy, if at all possible. I don't know. That's what I would say. So, anyway, hope you nerds had a good time for Halloween and everything. And I will talk to you all later. Bye! So, um, for us on the call right now, um, I talked about how I sort of watched Ghostbusters. <laughs> I caught the oh. last, like, third of it at a Halloween party. And I was like, well, this is really weird. And I wish I had context for this. Because I had never seen Ghostbusters before. The the original Ghostbusters, by the way. And mm-hmm. then, um, this week, I was hanging out with my friends Brett and Jerry. And just mentioned in passing how I hadn't seen Ghostbusters properly. And of course, Jerry freaked out like, what? What do you mean you've never seen Ghostbusters? Wow, that's exactly like him. Yep, totally. (laughs) And (laughs) um, (laughs) so we like, we were actually watching Rogue One and he and Brett were both just like, no, we got to watch Ghostbusters right now. And it's like nine o'clock at night. I'm like halfway out the door already. They're like, no, 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 no. We're going to watch Ghostbusters. So I got to actually properly watch Ghostbusters and it is fine. It's, <gasps> it's, uh, I mean, I'd probably watch it again just because, you know, sometimes when you watch it with a group like that, you know, there's like commentary and it's mm. like, it's not funny when you kind of talk over it and then the jokes can't land properly. Yeah, you so, should read that to first time watchers. That's not cool. <laughs> it is what it is. I mean, eh. that's something you do when you've got friends who've seen the movie before and like you've watched it five or six times. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like terrible, but there were definitely moments where, especially at the beginning, because uh, is it Bill Murray's character? who's kind of the sleaze bag and he's like hitting on one of the, the students. And I was <laughs> yes, like, yep. oh boy, this really didn't age well. And he, I'm just like, oh God, this is so creepy. And Brett and Jerry are over there just like laughing their asses off and they just see me on the couch, just like cringe face. And they're, <laughs> they're like, whoops, I guess Corinne, she doesn't I'm like sen- it. Corinne, I'm sensing a great disturbance in the nerd force as, as if there were a million voices were crying out in anger. And then just wouldn't stop screaming. <laughs> uh oh, we got a ton of toxic emails coming into the real nerds Gmail oh right now. Oh my god, Henry, Henry, man, the man, the port battle. We've got to defend the the fortress. I hope uh, you're ready for a five hour dissertation <laughs> about why you're wrong. So they're all from I know, dudes. I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to hear it. Going to hear it from the angriest of Reddit users. <laughs> so there actually was a really good joke in there. That I mean, I think like just on the surface it's just like kind of i don't know like a throwaway line maybe but um so it's when uh dan Ackroyd says like i've been in the private spec i've been in the private sector they expect results which you know (laughs) because they've been in academia for so long it's like you so you're implying that in academia they don't expect results which i'm like 
you know, I knew a whole bunch of professors in college and they felt exactly that same way. I'm just like, yeah. you know, you just kind of like hang out in your office for 20 years and people kind of forget you're there. So mm. it's great. Yeah. You know, Corinne, uh, like I love that first movie, but I'm like, I don't hold it on the same pedestal that others do. So I understand where you're coming from. I think it's a good movie. Just it's not like it, it wasn't my childhood. So yeah. I'm glad that you get you gave it the credit of having one good joke. Like, you defended <laughs> I mean, there it were to other, the audience. There were other good jokes in there, but that was the one that actually made me laugh out loud because and it was funny because Jerry and Brett were kind of looking over at me like, wow, she found that funny. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't I, laughing at like much of else in the movie. I still do love when Harold Ramis says I collect spores and various fungi. Like that's like that's a cute little nerd nerdy thing. But I think I remember that. And that was a pretty good one too. <laughs> I just I remember both both times I watched the the ending where so they like get out of the car. And, you know, they're like, oh, you know, we're going to save New York, everybody. There's like the crowd cheering for them. And then the earth opens up and they all fall in. And I said both times, like, well, Ghostbusters are dead. Movie over, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been interesting. That's why they called it Ghostbusters Afterlife. (laughs) Because they're dead. Uh Uh-huh. You see? So, like I said, I would be willing to watch it again. I wasn't like completely oh so off put by it. I'll never watch it ever again. It's fine. It's, it's a, like it's, a, it, it's like everybody else's Back to the Future. Like it's just beloved by people, but just not by me. Hmm. I gotcha. I understand. Would you be interested in Ghostbusters two? You know, they said that I should watch that, and I'm like, I don't really care. Sure, I guess. It, it's I like it a lot. Like in in the grand scheme of liking Ghostbusters, like I think it's a fine movie. I don't think there's a single bad Ghostbusters movie, but they just also are not like they don't like cling to my soul the way they do for others. I kind of enjoy Ghostbusters too for several different reasons, but between that and uh, the reboot, I'd be curious for you to go through each of them and give us your honest opinions of each one. Yeah, I don't really care about the franchise enough to do that. It's just. <laughs> It was just when you finish that, comedy. you can watch the animated show, watch all <laughs> episodes of the animated series, and reviewing one by you one each. You know what, your for, thoughts you know what one. Henry pointed it out for me. I'm a fucking idiot. Don't do that, Corinne. <laughs> so Plus, then, you watch yeah. Uh, so lately, for whatever reason, um, I just went on this like X Men binge, and I watched all of X Men Evolution. And all of Wolverine and the X-Men, both of which are on Disney Plus. And now I'm just kind of skipping around through X-Men, the animated series. And I got to say, I I grew up watching X-Men Evolution as a kid. And I love that show to death. And it is honestly amazing how well it's held up over the last like 20, 25 years. Uh, The premise is that, you know, most of the X-Men, they're teenagers. And so they all kind of like come into the school And they're, you know, struggling, like, how to figure out using their powers, but also being normal, quote, normal teenagers. Um, And also keeping their powers under wraps, because the first half of the show, people don't know that mutants exist. And then halfway through the show, uh, they get outed, so to speak, um, that, you know, the world is, you know, gets to, like, oh, mutants walk among us and all the fallout that happens from that. So that was interesting to see them tackle that subject. And then... The final two seasons, 
they're building up to Apocalypse. And then the uh, series finale, they are battling Apocalypse. And yeah, it's... battling Oscar Isaac? (laughs) No, no. Actually, uh, they're... Nope, they're just battling Apocalypse. I know. I remember this show, but I'm trying to remember how long it lasted, Corinne. Four seasons. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. I remember that I remember that Wolverine was not one of the teenagers. That's what I remember. Right. So yeah, they have uh Cyclops, Jean Grey, Storm uh Storm is one of the instructors, and so is Wolverine. And then they have Shadowcat, Rogue, Nightcrawler, and Spike, who is um Storm's nephew, and he can shoot spikes out of his body. So mm. and he's a skateboarder. Although they kind of just like completely forget about him in season three. Like he just goes off and lives with the Morlocks and then I'm he fair- shows up twice fair- in season four. I'm fairly sure Spike pops up in X3, The Last Stand. Um, He's one of the mutants that disrespects Eric and then Eric has to go like, I'll show you, young man. Um, And um, and then I believe he gets taken out by one of the um, the the cure bullets or whatever it is. Right. I mean, that might be somebody with the same powers, but I don't know if that's the same character. Well, Wikipedia is there for reasons. So (laughs) I'll look this up. (laughs) Because I don't know, Spike, I'm not sure if Spike exists in the comics. That might have been a character they created for the show, which incidentally, X-Men Evolution is where they first introduced X-23, a.k.a. Laura, Wolverine's clone slash daughter. So that's where she originates from. And I got to that episode and I was like, this is such a great episode. Oh my gosh. She's, she really is just like a little mini Wolverine. And I love the fact that his dynamic with like all of the teenagers is like way different than it is in X-Men, the animated series, because of course there isn't the, you know, Cyclops, Gene, Wolverine love triangle because they're teenagers and he's, you know, one of their instructors, but there is kind of this nice little nod to it because Cyclops is all like, oh, I should really ask Jean out. Oh, what do I do? And Wolverine's just like, if you don't tell her, I will, which is like, yes, such a nice little nod to like the love triangle without actually getting into it. Oh, Corinne. What? Spike is played by Lance Gibson in X-Men The Last Stand. I knew a comic book thing. Boom. Good job, Zach. Yeah. What's my prize? Nothing. I figured. (laughs) So Wolverine (laughs) and the X-Men is, uh, it's a little bit newer, I want to say 2011, and it's only one season. It kind of ends on this, like, you know, sort of ambiguous note, like, yes, they wrap up the kind of central conflict of the season, but they leave a few things that they could have picked up for season two if they got one, but they didn't. So it's fine. It definitely gives a lot of emphasis to Wolverine, so much so that sometimes the plot has to come to a screeching halt. It's like, oh yeah, you know, the world is basically at war with the mutants. But, you know, let's stop all that for a second so Wolverine can go fight a samurai in the street. Sure, okay. Yeah, but that sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure that the other part's also good. But if I was just kind of flipping channels and I was like, Oh, do I want to watch the internal conflict of these mutants and what in their identity? Or do I want to watch Wolverine fight a fucking samurai? I'm going to pick the samurai option. You know what? Hold on. I'm torn now. <laughs> like, I'm genuinely torn. Because do I watch 
the moral de- the moral and ethical debates between Eric Lencher and Charles Xavier, or do I watch what you just wonderfully described? Yeah. <laughs> I am. You know what, Henry? You've put me in the first real dilemma of my adult life. <laughs> well, actually, Professor X isn't really in Wolverine and the X-Men. It's kind of explained at the beginning that he falls into a coma at the very beginning of the show. Well, but that's he a terrible idea. He communicates with the team from 20 years in the future using Cerebro. So he there he's like teamed up with Bishop and all of them to fight the uh, Sentinels. Oh, so, oh, similar to um, uh, Days of Future Past. Gotcha. Exactly. Very okay. much like that. Right on. So That's he doesn't cool. get to meet up with Magneto or anything. So it, so Magneto doesn't tell get to tell him that they are the future and not the others? They no longer matter? Nope. But yeah, oh, sometimes it. it's just frustrating because it's like, I like Wolverine, but you like the show gave him way more emphasis. And uh, it's just frustrating because I'm like, you have such a great, uh, you know, array of, of mutants and characters here. It's like, why do you have to focus on Wolverine so much? And I understand he's very popular, but I, maybe it's I, because he's <clears throat> focused on so much, like focus on some of these other people. and Maybe they would be more popular, too. You know, I, I, I don't mean this to sound as a joke. I genuinely don't. I don't know why nobody's tried to um, dig more into Scott Summers, not because I think he's the most like dynamic character that I've ever seen, but there are stories that have done him well, and there are conflicts that put him at odds with Wolverine directly in regards to Charles's legacy down the line in those stories. I don't know why nobody's tried to do that. They came close with the latter well, X- trilogy with yeah. um um what's his what's his guy um ty sheridan playing uh, yeah. cyclops they came close but you really need to like dig into that character i think you if, if, if you're gonna break away from wolverine you should try that yeah and like don't don't rely on the crutch of jean gray i know she's a wonderful character but try try something different because it could work. Yeah. You know? I, well, that's why X-Men Evolution works so well, because Scott is really likable in the show. And he's maybe not a leader of the like he leads the teenager X-Men because he and Gene are some of the oldest students at the manor. But, you know, depending on the situation, like he might not always be in charge because, you know, when the situation really is serious, like Storm or Professor X or Wolverine will take up, will step up and take over. Or occasionally but generally, Blob. right. No, <laughs> no, Blob is, he's in the show, but he's not on the X-Men. He's in the I'm, Brotherhood. Yeah, of course he is. So honestly, like, that's one of the reasons I love X-Men Evolution. That and because in X-Men, the animated series, man, they nerf Jean Grey hard. She mm-hmm. is like one of the most powerful mutants. And I know she has the Phoenix Saga, too, but. Like, just in the day-to-day episodes, it's like, she's just getting knocked out by, like, I don't know, TV static or some bullshit. So, to see her in X-Men Evolution, like, at the beginning, she's she definitely can't use her powers to their full potential. But you can see in the latter seasons, like, she's starting to, you know, have better control over them. Like, she can lift more weight. She can hold things for longer. And, you know, before, you know, she could, she could barely lift a person without, like, straining herself and then... By season three and season four, she can lift like multiple people and carry them, you know, great distances and things like that. So that's how I, I evolved. That. On, that's how I evolved on the Real Nerds podcast. At first, I couldn't lift any of you guys, and now I can lift one of you. You know, progress, not perfection. <laughs> anyway, so I, yeah, lots of X Men stuff for some reason. 
So do you guys want me to talk about Encanto now or should I save that for later? Do it now. Okay. So I went to go see Encanto last night. I honestly didn't know it was a musical. I guess all the marketing that I've seen for it, I wasn't expecting there to be songs like that. But I mean, it was fine. Lin-Manuel Miranda was the songwriter and... (laughs) like you can tell because man he must be the only songwriter in Hollywood anymore because all the songs sound very similar to everything else he's written which isn't necessarily bad it's just like wow we're getting more of the same all right um but the story is excellent the voice performances are great animation is beautiful so I highly recommend it also I wrote like a full length review for it on the Real Nerds website so you should go check that out realnerdspodcast.com should be under showtime in Kanto review or whatever new stuff on the website wow i know i hadn't posted on there since like august which i feel bad about but you know po- life i haven't happens. posted on there since last august so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so go check out the real nerds website and yeah. i would definitely want to talk about it more uh once we can do like a spoilery review for it hmm are we, is that our movie of the week next week, Brad? Uh, no. Well, next week, which we're already right on Wednesday here, but this week is uh, Raccoon City, Resident Evil. What? Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, based on the motion picture series by Paul W.S. Anderson, starring Mia Makova. Um, I've never even heard of this. Or, I mean, I've heard uh, of the Mila Resident Yoba Evil Bitch, movies. That's her name, yeah. Is that the one where Jared Leto plays a zombie? No, that's House of Gucci. (laughs) (laughs) I got him. Jared Leto. Are you taking people down a thing? Are you the real nerd's way? Are you firing shots across the ballot, Ridley Scott? For some reason, well, I'm a millennial and he's declared war on us. So, (laughs) real nerds with the hot takes. You know what? You're just indifferent, is what you are, young man. Yep. Well, I respectfully request that we change that to Encanto for the next episode. I nominate House of Gucci to piss off Henry and Ryan at the same time. <laughs> I'd see that. I'm actually pl- I'm going to go see it tomorrow night because I'm I need a gangster movie and this seems like the closest equivalent I'm going to get. <laughs> so um, Jared Leto in a I didn't know it was Jared Leto. I had to be told it was Jared Leto. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> like it's got Adam Driver in it. I'd see it. It does. It also has Al Pacino and yeah. it has La- uh, Lady Gaga. Not with Lord Gaga this time, just no, Lady Gaga. Just the lady. Yeah. She had to go out on her own, man. Yeah. You know? Lady Gaga needs to do her own thing with Lord Gaga is in Nightmare Alley. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. It's, it's, I don't think we're going to get to it because this week uh, is, is Ryan was very adamant that it's Resident Evil because. He this loves the podcast that. and he loves that. And then yeah. next week will be Film Explosion 2011. And then, I don't know, West Side Stories after that. Maybe that's one we can kick to the curb. Okay. Yeah. Fuck off, Spielberg. Yeah. What have you done <laughs> for no, us lately? No, we should see West Side Story. That's like actually a musical. Actually, guys, hi, it's Spielberg here. I've given you years of magic, and according to at least three of you, I'm the world's greatest living director, which isn't true because my friend Marty's clearly better. Oh, fighting words for James. (laughs) (laughs) 
I can't really do a good Spielberg impression. It's not like Lucas. Yeah, I like how your, impre- your impersonation of Steven Spielberg is just your regular voice. <laughs> so... I'm sorry. Is this better? <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, that's all I've been watching. Uh, Zach, what have you been watching? Oh, I've watched a lot, actually. Um, but before I talk about any movies, I want to talk about a television show I watch, question mark? Um, no, it, it's true. Um, you watch television? Back. That's not allowed. I, That's my thing. Hey, Corinne, not only did I watch television, I watched anime. <gasps> Martin what, Scorsese literally. does television? <laughs> <laughs> Was it a gangster anime? Is that why? Yes, it's Martin An Scorsese. An old Hollywood anime. Yes, it's Martin Scorsese's Tokyo Godfathers. No. <laughs> um, um, no, uh, uh, a show called Fruits Basket. Um, that yes! was suggested. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, not okay. directed by Martin Spills Scorsese. Spills a tea. Not, first of all, not directed by Martin Scorsese yet. Um, but, He'll get um, around to it, just like he turned Infernal Affairs into The Departed. You know what? Settle in, Brad. I don't think, I don't think that's the case. No. So this Fruits Basket is a... Um, I was I was not sure what to make of it at first, because it's been recommended to me by both Malia, uh, my friend Malia and um, Corinne here. Um, and it's about a, a a girl named Honda who uh, is living out in a tent in the middle of a forest. Um, and her mother has passed away. And she's going to school and working and basically trying to be self-reliant. And she's not really letting anybody help her or accepting any help. So it's, it's like that kind of like that, that strong will, but also like not knowing when to ask for help, um, pursuing through her system. Um, and she runs into it's because she doesn't want to be a burden. She doesn't want to be a burden. Yes, that's right. Thank you for that. Because she she saw how like part of it has to do with how her mom died and what happened before that. And her mother worked very hard to see that Honda could succeed um, where she could not when she was a kid. Um, so as she's going through the forest, she stumbles across this house that has these stones that are painted to look like the Chinese Zodiac, um, which has all the animals except for the cat. Um, and then that's when she runs into a guy named, um, I, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it, but it's Shigri. Uh, Shigur? Oh, Shigure. Shigure. Um, and um, uh, and uh, his cousin, uh, uh, Yuki Soma, um, who Yuki Soma is the most popular guy at their school ever. Corinne, this guy has a fan club, like some kind of weird fan club um, of three I mean, different do you girls. Them? I mean, no, he, I, he cute. no, no, Yuki, Yuki, I do him. But I'm just telling you that it was weird to watch these three, like, like these three fangirls doing like this, like, uh, like aggressive, like, advance on Honda going like, what were you doing with them in the forest? What were you doing? They're talking to them. What were you doing? They're walking through the school. And it, it dawned on me that I had not watched anime in a long, long time. And I had to reacquaint myself with how quick things are, how the humor works and how speed works. Once I got into that, the story really started working for me. First of all, they explained the Chinese Zodiac and all the different animals that are in it, except for the cat because the cat was tricked by the rat and not coming to a banquet where all the Chinese Zodiac would, uh, would, would ascend. And so the cat was left out of the Zodiac. 
and as uh, Honda is, you know, like making making further friends with Yuki, Yuki alludes to the fact that like it, they they are talking about the Zodiac, and he alludes to the fact of just like cats, such naive and foolish creatures. You're like, what's this all about? Hmm, I don't know. What we do know is is that uh, Honda is uh, uh, it is working her ass off to be self-reliant and not wanting to be a burden. Uh, but she then ends up winding up in a position where she needs to be uh, taking refuge at Yuki's house. Um, so Yuki and his cousin basically agree, like, we're going to, we're going to take you on as our housekeeper um, and like pay you in addition to having you live here. And she goes into this emotional speech about the phrase be safe which was one of the most like heartwarming things i'd ever heard in my life um and so i was i guess like to, um, in a way to review this i was not expecting to be moved by this anime um so i'm really really glad that it was recommended to me by two people like to be like before diving in but there was like a lot of like a there was a lot of emotional resonance that i was just like not i wasn't prepared for um then things get crazy because this is only the first episode guys, because as they settle into their new life together, uh, there becomes a conflict with um, another person who enters the house and she accidentally bops him and he turns into a cat. And then the uh, he, she bops Yuki and her cousin and they turn into a rat and a dog. And I, and I immediately was just like, Oh, this show is going in such a weird direction that I have to be on board now. Um, so I'm going to go through an episode a day now on this. Um, but it was like just the storytelling in that first episode alone, Corinne, was a really good, like really solid storytelling. Um, like I said, I still had to get used to uh, anime because I'm watching the original series prior to the reboot. Um, so I'm going back to. Yeah. So that's what I mean by like. Because like my friend, my friend told me that like the the reboot series tones down the humor a little bit i kind of enjoyed the humor in this version so um i think they're both funny yeah I, well i mean i'm excited they're for both, both pulling from the same source material but maybe mm. just yeah sometimes like the tone might be a little different i, I feel like it, it kind of reminds me of when i remember what i remember of stuff like dragon ball and dragon ball z where there's like there's humor mixed in with all the action or intertwined drama and sometimes the tone feels a little uneven but I didn't get it with this one because it's primarily like it's, it's human drama based. It's not based off of like Goku trying to find seven dragon balls and make a wish. You know, this is, this right. is, this just... is more shoujo anime, not shonen, which is the one with like all the fighting. Mm-hmm. This is yeah, more but... like romantic comedy sort of thing. Yeah. Which is, I think kind of one of the reasons why I dug it. Cause I was just like, Oh, it's just like, it's, it's, it's people interacting in a situation. It has nothing to do with action. So it was interesting to look at it from that perspective. I think them turning into animals threw me off though in the last 30 seconds. Cause I'm like, what is this show going to be? <laughs> um, but I am very excited to see where it goes. So, um, so yeah, you got, your guys are going to get, get some anime talk from me going forward. Um, so Corinne has a friend on the show now. <laughs> Yay! I'm, I, I'm very curious to hear what you think of it. I'm glad you like, you know the kind of emotional core and that mm-hmm. that definitely doesn't go away but i will say it can be kind of melodramatic at times because you're talking about like oh toru makes this like emotional speech i'm like 
that's every episode, man. <laughs> but, 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 but I do appreciate that there is a humanity behind it. And, and I appreciate that there's this smaller story of Honda trying to find herself and be comfortable with herself. Like there, there is something like like the, the whole phrase where, where her mother goes like, be yourself. Like, it's just like, that's a really just a nice, simple statement to make. Like, it doesn't have to have an overarching theme. She doesn't have to go on a quest and destroy a ring. Like, it's just like, just be yourself. Like, enjoy, enjoy your life with these, with these two guys who are now also secretly animals. What's the story there? I don't know. We're going to find out. But, um, but yeah, like it's, it was just nice to kick back to that and watch something that people recommended to me in my life and go like, man, that was like amazing. Like, I cannot believe I missed out on this. So, you know, like sometimes it's good to get a good recommendation by that and realize that like your friends do look out for you and go like, you know, he probably would enjoy this. And I'm like, yes, I did. <laughs> like, So I'm on board with that. Um, now on to the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, everybody. I went to the um, uh, Attaboy Clarence Film Festival uh, day two, and I saw a bunch of films. Uh, some I've already talked about on this show, so I won't talk about everything. But I will tell you that I saw Guilty Hands, um, which is uh, my review of of it was my hands are guilty of clapping heartily at the end of this motion picture because it was a good movie. Ah. You see. Um, then I watched a movie called Silver Dollar, which is actually based off of a real life figure from Leadville, Colorado, um, Tabor, who um, uh, built the Tabor Offer House. Corinne, do you know of anything about this? I do not. Okay, so he was a, it was he was a, he was he was a silver baron and he got caught up in the fight between what would become the standard, um, whether the gold standard or the silver standard in the country. And it had and it had a lot to do with President Grant, what this movie actually is. And I wish it was more readily available um, is that it's basically there will be blood before Paul Thomas Anderson ever sat down to write a movie. Because Edward G. Robinson plays a Daniel Plainview-esque character. It's not as um, uh, intimate as that. But it is really very much like the early origins and genesis of that. It's also kind of Citizen Kane before Citizen Kane happened. Uh, Virtually every identical plot point to the point of even building an opera house. Um, so it was very, very interesting to watch it. And Edward G. Robinson gives this amazing performance in the movie. Like it's, it's not what you expect out of him. He's not really a gangster. I think they asked him to do the, uh, the, the accent that he does or like the drawl on his voice because it's the most appealing to the audience, but he's asked to do an actual character here. And it's like, it's fantastic. It's one of the best movies I saw at the festival that I hadn't already seen before. Um, then I saw Mitch Lyson's murder at the vanities, which is a, filmic portrayal of Earl Carroll's vanities mixed in with a murder plot because I guess they needed a plot. I don't know. I think Mitch Lyson looked at the plot and said, guys, we've got the vanities here. What the fuck do we need a plot for? And the studio said, but we need a plot. And Mitch Lyson was like, well, can I still do weird acid trips on stage? And he's like, well, of course you can. And so they did both. And the movie is therefore inconsistent, incoherent, but amazing. (laughs) So uh, if you are wanting to watch a movie that is purely an excuse to promote Earl Carroll's vanities and what it was. This is your movie. Um, This is the show that Jack went to work for before he went to radio and looking at the staging of it. I was like, Holy fuck. The vanities must've been fun. 
that must have been the most decadent party of the 30s imaginable on stage. Um, and knowing now that my great aunt got to go to one of them, I'm jealous of shit of my great aunt. <laughs> um, so uh, then I watched Easy Living, which is scripted by Preston Sturgis. Um, and I liked it a lot. It's a daffy kind of movie. It's also directed by Mitch Lyson. It's got Gene Arthur and Edward Arnold. Um, I, I want to watch it again because we were kind of having fun with the bombastic noise of the film that I kind of want to go back and kind of listen line by line. But basically, Edward Arnold's and uh, uh, Edward Arnold uh, is this rich guy who throws a coat that uh, throws a coat out of his apartment building and it's picked up by Gene Arthur and everybody thinks that he's suddenly dating Gene Arthur. Um, it's it's a lovely film. It's got more to it. I just, I wasn't paying as much attention on that particular film. My attention snapped back though, with a movie called five star final, um, which this movie is readily available, um, especially through Warner archive. It's got Edward G Robinson in it. I will tell you that this movie is one of the most relevant movies I have seen out of the golden age of Hollywood in terms of to this minute um it's about a paper essentially which is intentionally creating scandal in order to sell more papers and it the goes plot into, to tomorrow never dies yes but um with actual consequences and not james bond consequences um uh like genuinely this movie goes into some dark territory that i'm a I'm amazed you get away with it. Number one, it is a pre-code movie, but even for a pre-code, like this shit is fucking dark. Um, HB Warner is in it and he gives an amazing performance, but I can't tell you why, because you've got to watch this fucking thing. Um, I will say that there is language in this movie too, that I did not realize they were able to get away with in 31. There is, (laughs) There is racist like language. They, there oh, is, they're not yeah. dropping like F bombs or something. No, no. M has M has cursing in it. Um, no, uh, this movie has like people in the newspaper industry actively using racist terms in it. Now, but it's they're using it in this weird way, like that is comparable in some odd ways to how Scorsese and Tarantino use them. Um, and I don't know how to fully explain that other than like, you know how like they do that to envelop you in the world of those characters. I think that's what this movie's doing because I've never really seen a pre-code movie that has the audacity to use that language. And I almost think it's a movie that Martin Scorsese could remake this and virtually change nothing in that script and still make an effective movie for today it's kind of a miracle movie. Uh, It's also a movie that will depress the hell out of you over what we experience now. Um, So I would definitely recommend watching it. Um, It is available on Warner archive and through Amazon prime. It's a great Edward G Robinson movie. He's a piece of shit in this movie. And then when he flips by the end, you actually believe it and he's actually earned it. It's not a forced Hollywood ending. Like this is a genuinely good golden age hollywood ending with a dark message behind it um and uh 
And then I also rewatched um, Our Miss Brooks, the motion picture. Uh, that's just uh, chicken soup for the soul, guys. So that's why it's a four star movie. If anybody has any problem with that, I'll fight them. Uh, and then I uh, rewatched a movie called Kid Galahad with Edward G. Robinson uh, training a boxer uh, and helps him rise to the top. It's an OK gangster movie. Not really a gangster movie. It's more of a boxing movie, but it's got gangster attitude towards it. And Humphrey Bogart plays uh, uh, the manager of another fighter who's also basically a gangster. Basically, they're gangsters, but they're also doing fighting stories. So it's kind of like Rocky, but not really Rocky. Um, and then I rewatched Island of Lost Souls because it's Island of Lost Souls. And why wouldn't you want to rewatch Island of Lost Souls? Uh, and uh, apart from that, I rewatched M. Uh, which is amazing. And you'll hear more about that from me and Henry on an upcoming Ballyhoo. And that's all I watched this week. Well, I don't know if we have time for my stuff. So let's just uh, <laughs> move it along here. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I watched I watched a couple things uh, starting with TV this week. I finally watched Freaks and Geeks, uh, which I've been told for a long time to do. And people oh, were right. That? Uh, it's great. It's. I think it's, mm-hmm. it was way ahead of its time. Um, yeah. It has a like if if it was a Netflix series today, I think it would do really well. Um, it takes place in 1980, um, and it's a you know a, a high school show about high school, and it's you focus on the freaks and the geeks, and there's uh, kind of like a trio of geeks that have a storyline, and then the main daughter of the weir family um she is a mathlete who not entirely sure why but she's kind of rejecting um being a mathlete and her life up to this point i assume something about her grandmother dying has she kind of has a personality shift and it kind of like forces her to reevaluate her identity yeah so she starts exploring new friends and she falls into this new this freaks click which is basically just a bunch of burnouts. You hang out and smoke um, between class. And um, eventually all these characters kind of, you know, some of them have uh, in between the freaks and the geeks, they have their own animosity toward each other, but both those groups also are united against like the jocks and everything. And, um, you know, it's just like a, it's a it's a really cool look at um high school life which you know when it came out i was the same age as those uh people um Mm -hmm. in my my junior year so it's it's really weird that like to watch that and like when it came out you know it just felt like they were years ahead of me Uh, you should um you should watch undeclared as a follow-up because that's another show with a lot of apatowites in it yeah i forgot to preface with like it was a you know early apatow and like watching all these like the whole cast top to bottom mm-hmm. all these people went on to do great things <laughs> and have yeah. super su- successful careers even though this show was canceled in the first season um and so yeah seeing all them really young and just you know always they always felt like adults to me as mm-hmm. actors and performers but like they were literally you know, my peers uh so yeah just um that was wild and then there was a uh, you know the show takes place in 1980 and there's a line at one point where they're talking about um, a, like a movie's coming out and they should go see Friday the 13th. Um, like there's another one out. And I was just like, well, the first one came out in 1980. So how would there be the sequel yet? If they're talking mm-hmm. about another Friday the 13th. 
because I assume the season is just that 1980 to 1981 school year. So part two would have come out in May of 81, which, you know, the school year would have wrapped up before then. So I think it's, it's kind of like my Mad Men hookup within the pilot where he reinvents the branding for Lucky Strike cigarettes with it's toasted. And I'm like, that phrase was there before you got here, Don Draper, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Maybe they really just wanted a second Friday, the 13th movie. Maybe they did. You never know. Uh, that show you, you kind of just sparked a memory for me, Brad, because I really love that episode where uh, Seth Rogen's character is torn by if she, he, she, he should stay with that girl who he finds out is a hermaphrodite. Yeah, um, that's ahead of its time. Like it's it's extremely ahead of its time. But the I, conversation that he and Sam have about um, uh, appreciating the people that are in their lives, because Sam's just like, oh, I took my girlfriend to the jerk and she didn't like it. And Rogan's like, my girlfriend loved the jerk. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, this is adorable. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the whole arc of the season. You know, the the kid Sam, you know, is, is pining after this uh, cheerleader girl. I forget her name right now, but, um, you know, she seems nice enough as a person, but when they actually end up dating and right away, like they realize their whole attraction to each other is superficial mm-hmm. um, and it, it, it dissolves super quickly. And it's just, I don't really re- remember seeing a lot of stuff like that in shows from then, but also I, you know, watch a ton of shows like that. So, but yeah, I, I think that show was also secretly Martin Starr's show as Bill. He's, he's great in that show like oh everybody is i just uh, yeah and it's really it's really tough to get to episode 18 and just be like all these loose storylines just sitting on the floor you know nothing. i know it's it's why i can't go back to it that often because i'm just like i just i know it's gonna end and it's gonna make me sad <laughs> yeah it's been 20 years so you can't really like really do you know season two you know you'd, you'd skip over high school entirely yeah and you also have to address certain cast members but um yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I would, I would check out Undeclared afterwards. Um, Undeclared is a lot of fun. It's also an unfortunately too too short a stay, but you get a lot of. I love how those both those shows give you a sense of what the Apatow vibe is going to be for a good ten years, and you know, I I appreciate that era of comedy that we got, and I hope we get more of it in in different forms. Like I still haven't seen King of Staten Island or. Um, oh, that's great! Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I also watched uh, this week's Saturday Night Live, and man, I'm really loving the season. Uh, it's pretty good this season. Yeah, and ever surprisingly since, so. Yeah, ever since the break came back too. Like even just the sketches are really good. Like I always like the weekend updates, but uh, just the individual sketches. It just feels like you know for a cast that's unusually large for an SNL cast. It, it is a very large cast this year. Feels yeah, like the the new feature people are getting a ton of, of uh, screen time and yeah. Uh, Kate McKinnon's still in the uh, the credits, but she hasn't appeared on an episode yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they they get do a good job of like rotating people in and out because uh, like, some episodes won't have certain people at all. Um, then you know they'll be on the next week doing a, a ton of work. And uh, yeah, just like this week's uh, d- uh, doghead <laughs> doghead man was great. That's probably my favorite. Uh, but it's actually a recycled sketch because Sam Rockwell, I think two or three years ago, did a similar sketch. Yeah, um, but it seems like they like, you know, it was a little clunky then, and they've since rewritten it, and they you know redid it this week, and it was like way funnier. Uh, and it uh, is um, Simu Lu was the host this week, 
Um, and he was like doing this army general thing. And yeah, it's, it just seems like everyone's having fun on the show. Uh, Is it, know. do you think it's because they're rotating them out? So that like, they're just, they're not oversaturating you with the same performers each time that that's kind of giving it a nice fresh take on it. Yeah. I think no one's really getting a chance to like become a star, you know, and, and like take over the show. So everyone's, it's, it feels very much like a repertory group where everyone's kind of putting in equal time. And, you know, I, I, I feel like some people like Punky Johnson are still getting the shaft because I think she gets the least. Um, and she's often a very small part in whatever sketch she does get. Um, and then James Austin, jo- Austin Johnson's getting a lot of time because he can do a ton of the like relevant impressions because mm-hmm. he does both Biden and Trump. So um, he's like a his Trump impression's threat. pretty good. Yeah, he's got that, like, not just the, you know, the sound and uh, he's also got like the, like the psychology behind it too. It's mm-hmm. not just a, a complete caricature. So, um, yeah. I thought their music video this last weekend was really good. And the, uh, are you a Republican game show thing? That was yeah. pretty cute. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Well, basically, like they bring somebody out, and then based on like really vague statements, they try to guess whether they're a Republican. It's like the guy comes out, and he's like, "I hate Facebook," and they're like, "Because it spreads misinformation, or because they banned Donald Trump." Yeah, <laughs> just highlights how difficult to navigate, like how you know, like not div- like you know, everything seems divided, but when you get down to it, like everything is really you know some of the people you think are one way actually also go the other way. It just depends on how you read them. Yeah. Right. It's not quite so obvious sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Nuance. Yeah, yeah that's fun. Uh, then movie wise, uh, I watched a couple. The big thing, I flew all the way to Los Angeles to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the new Beverly cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, it sucks that I only spent like four hours there really <laughs> uh, and spent equal time flying there and back, but it was cool because I did not expect Ernie Reyes Jr. to be there. And he got up on stage and talked a little bit before the show and that started late, which sucked for my uh, car meter <laughs> street meter. But, um, and then uh, Kumail J- Nanjani was there and I forgot yeah, he's a Ninja Turtles fan. So apparently that's the first time you ever saw it in the theater. So he was just hanging Aww. out there watching it um, with a gr- crowd and everyone was having fun and into it. And um, the screen there is actually pretty small uh, compared to, you know, a, a comparable theater to that would be the Esquire here. Um, and the Esquire's screen is way bigger than the new Beverly. Um, they, they, their screen size is just a little bit bigger than the top level of the Esquire. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty narrow. I, I love that intimacy that it has, though. Um, yeah, it's like the example of the Esquire or like the, the third screen at the Chez Artiste. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it also like, but it's kind of great because it, it does, one, it does have plenty of seats. And number two, it does give you a really com- fun 70s kind of experience out of it. Like you do feel like you're like stuck in a little grindhouse. Like it's really cool. That reminds me, they had like, um, like their own pre-show where they played... Um, a uh a disney cartoon with pluto like at odds with a turtle Mm -hmm. uh i forget the name of it but yeah pluto was like kind of sparring against the turtle and they become friends at the end obviously but 
uh yeah they had their own and they had a bunch of different like retro trailers like batman returns is playing there uh, this weekend so they did that that plays a lot at their kitty matinees like yeah. so if you ever re- want to rewatch batman like keep an eye on their kitty matinee schedule because they do that and they do um oddly enough they do the birds a lot that yeah. too. and i don't know because that's not really a kid's movie but and the main reason i went is because it was projecting in 35 millimeter which i haven't seen in probably 30 years so mm. that's why i went through the trouble of doing that because it's played at the alamo and the esquire here plenty of times digitally and uh mm. yeah so uh it was cool kind of seeing all the cigarette burns and scratches again and there was a couple parts that were cut out <laughs> someone had clipped the uh the reels and taken them home so mm-hmm. that was fun to fun to watch yeah, constantly expecting lines to finish and then they're just <laughs> emitted and the scene jumps and you're like oh cool I'm not uh, gonna bother to restore it man <laughs> yeah and then at home I watched a movie called Showtime which I haven't seen since 2002 uh, uh, when I stocked it on shelves at Hollywood Video <laughs> Eddie Murphy and, uh, and Robert De Niro, De Niro. Um, yeah. in the uh early early days before when reality television was still in its infancy this movie is a version of cops that's uh more focused on the leads as starring characters so uh robert de niro is like an undercover cop trying to uh track down these illegal guns eddie murphy is an aspiring actor who's also a cop um he screws up de niro's plan de niro gets really angry and makes the department look bad so as an apology the department agrees to put both of them into this reality show that follows these two cops and basically they're trying to solve the case while also make this deal with navigate the world of reality television so you know the show will come in and renovate de niro's department apartment so it looks trendier and uh Eddie Murphy's happily being like, you know, regurgitating all the cop cop movie cliches to make the the job more interesting than it really is. Um, yeah, it's it's fine. <laughs> I've still never seen this movie, Brad, but I remember seeing posters for it all over the Greenwood Plaza Twelve when we would go to the theater to see a movie with um, next to us, and. I've still never seen it, but do you happen to know if it's rated R or PG-13? Uh, pretty sure it's R. Okay. They swear a bunch in it. Okay. So then that's why my dad, we, we loved Eddie Murphy in the house, but I remember seeing some Eddie Murphy posters where my dad was like, we can't go to that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, why not? <laughs> it's definitely like somewhere between 13 and R, you know? Yeah. That was the same reaction that my dad had when I asked, could we go see life with Eddie Murphy? And he was like, no, we can't go see that one. <laughs> like, why now when i watched life and i was like oh no, that's why <laughs> my dad didn't want me watching that at five <laughs> uh next thing i watched was jingle all the way which i haven't seen since the 90s um and that's a fun movie about the dangers of uh basically black friday really um mm-hmm. but it really goes down the toilet <laughs> once uh, arnold schwarzenegger puts on the suit and starts flying around as turbo man uh, mm-hmm. those effects do not hold up no 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 of course they don't there's one point where he 
you know, rocketeer style, the jetpack smashes right into a wall with his head and he just smashes over and over again. It's, it's like a cartoon. Um, he, he's like a two by four. that's just rigid and hitting the wall and the physics don't hold up. Yeah. It's same with Sinbad. Really. They're both just there to be kicked around. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember watching that movie a lot when I was a kid. And then I think I rewatched it a couple of years ago and I'm like, Oh man. So man, that kid is so annoying. Yeah. When you're a kid, you you're on Arnold Schwarzenegger's side and you're even on Sinbad's side. But as an adult, I'm like, I'm on Phil Hartman's side. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Phil Hartman's a sleazebag neighbor in that. And poor Jake Lloyd, like you just said, he's annoying. Like, like he's I had know, two roles like that in Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> it's like, no wonder is, is, he's disgruntled. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, but... not, I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying it was, you know, you watch it now and you're like, oh boy. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't know there was a post-credits uh, scene, but that was that was cool to see. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that existed. Um, I mean, like that movie is that movie is a a cool little like holiday film if you're looking for something offbeat. Like, and anytime you can watch Phil Hartman on screen is a treasure that you should enjoy. So, yeah. Uh, and then the uh, last thing I watched was Timeline, which is a uh, Richard Donner archaeologists go back to medieval England and get in trouble and have to come back. Um, Paul Walker's in it. Gerard Butler. Um, oh, family's in it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I yeah, feel it, like I've seen that movie, although I don't really remember it. Yeah, I, I really didn't. I didn't really follow it too closely. It was pretty... I don't know. It just didn't nothing oh god who else uh michael sheen was the villain um, of he was but yeah like I, I i couldn't figure out the science of it or how they got back in time um god like it's so hard to explain the, the movie is so wrapped up in like it believes in itself and doesn't care if you're along for the ride or not if that makes sense mm-hmm. um like it, it, like some of so much of it just feels like you should already know what we're doing. It doesn't really like there is expedition to explain the time travel, but like I just wasn't, you know, the, nothing about these characters in the setup was like, oh, cool, like I, I'm so invested in their adventure. But yeah, they're like these archaeologists that are digging around this castle, and then the dad disappears, Billy Connolly, um, and they're like, oh, well, let's just hop in the time travel machine that we happen to have and go get him. Um, I was like, well, why did you disappear in the first place? Where, where did I miss that? And then as soon as they get back um, in medieval times, the cool part is like the movie addresses the danger of like, if that actually happened, like, you know, it's almost like a death trap, you know, it like the pass is so dangerous, like you would easily get killed. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. a bunch of their group just starts getting picked off by, um, you know, there's there's like a war between England and France at this point, so no one trusts anybody. And so, if you're just like a walking human, they're like, "Oh, that guy's probably not one of us. Kill him!" <laughs> they just kill him. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just blah. And that's why I watched this week, which brings us to the movie of the week, Ghostbusters Afterlife, 
which I guess just uh, Zach and I will be reviewing because Corinne and Henry both didn't watch it. Yeah, my screw friends, you, ghosts. My friends went You're to... You're not afraid see- of the Mario. No! <laughs> yeah, my friends invited me to go see it with them last night, and I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go see Encanto instead. Have fun! Bye! <laughs> All right, so since uh, Henry and Corinne didn't see the movie, I guess it's just you and me, Brad. Zach, should people watch Ghostbusters Afterlife? Of course. Yeah, you should. Um, we can get into it after the spoilers or after the trailer is played, but I'm under the impression that there's not a bad ghost movie, Ghostbusters movie out there. Um, all of them have been perfectly adequate and entertaining for what they needed to be. Um, this one was very much a uh, a, a sentimental look at the franchise and i appreciated what it what reitman did to honor something that clearly meant a lot to him as a kid not just because of his father making the first one but just the idea of the ghostbusters um while also uh finding a way to like dig into the mythology a little bit and give it something that i don't think it ever really possessed but i think we have to get into the after the trailer for me to fully explain my reasoning for that but i think everybody's hitting on all cylinders paul rudd's fun um the kids are great uh the the original cast has some wonderful moments but we will talk about that in a second because it was interesting to me how that played out um and I actually thought that there were some fun horror elements attached to this that I think Reitman did a good job at uh, pulling off. So, yeah, I would go check it out. It's a fun time. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a is a, a fine movie, uh, a fine addition to the Ghostbusters mythos. Um, I think my. I didn't I didn't enjoy it as much because it definitely had the Rise of Skywalker thing going for it, where it very much feels like an apology video. Um, and just offers up so much fan service to the point where a lot of this movie is a repeat of the first movie. Um, so it, it gives the longtime fans, you know, the stuff they want to see again, just repackage, uh, while offering very little new, um, along the way. So that, that disappointed me is like, I think there's a franchise that really needs to explore, uh, new things within it rather than just giving the fans the movie they had 30 years ago again. Um, so yeah, here's the trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife. What are you doing here in Somerville anyway? Honestly, my mom won't say it, but we're completely broke. And the only thing that's left in our name is this creepy old farmhouse our grandfather left us in the middle of nowhere. Why'd you bring me up here? Entertainment value. (laughs) What is that? I don't know. Somehow, a town that isn't anywhere near a tectonic plate, that has no fault lines, no fracking, no loud music even, is shaking on a daily basis. Under the dining table now! Hey, remember that one summer we died under a table? I found this in my living room. Whoa, killer replica. A replica of what? A ghost trap? 
hasn't been a ghost sighting in 30 years. New York in the 80s? It's like The Walking Dead. Your dad never mentioned this to you? It's just my mom. My grandfather died. My mom says we're just here to pick through the rubble of his life. Plus two, like if you've been following the Ghostbusters reboot for the past 20 years, uh, the plot of this is very much um, been circling around for a long time. And it feels like Jason Reitman's the one who finally just said, let's let's just do this one. Mm -hmm. Um, So except instead of uh, Bill Murray being dead, uh, they, they went with Harold Ramis, which makes sense because he actually passed away a few years ago. Yeah, uh, so the opening of this film to me was was a strong asset right out the gate because um, the thing that I appreciate about the first Ghostbusters in particular is the fact that it starts off like a haunted house movie or a horror movie. It's not really starting off as a comedy. What? What? I heard an... That wasn't me. Hmm. Um. But anyway, so I heard a, I, I got this sense of a horror movie coming off of it, which was good because I liked that feel to it. Um, and like, I mean, the moment you the moment you see that silhouette, you know, it's Ramus. And um, that also put fear in my spine because I'm like, oh, I know what they're going to do. <laughs> and I don't know if I want to see it. Um, and to the credit, I think they pull it off pretty well. Like they do. It was odd do. that they couldn't have him speak. Because there's super- I no I'm if he had spoken I would have flipped my shit. <laughs> I don't know why I just probably would have just been like don't do that guys please don't. It, but it seems like odd like there doesn't seem any rules to why he wouldn't be able to, you know like every other ghost makes noises but, um, he was oddly silent obviously because they just couldn't replicate that. Um, but the think, CGI well, of, of him uh, on his own just was convincing like you know there's cgi characters in spider-man far from home that i'm just like i'm not sure they're done with this movie yet uh but they pulled him off uh as a elder ghostbuster pretty well yeah i mean like i the reason why that works for me number one like i'm glad you don't have him speak because i don't think you need to have him speak i think it's i think it's important to feel that presence and that's more Egon in this movie is speaking through the power of a ghost and he's all throughout the movie. Like Egon is a character in this entire movie. Um, He's just a ghost. He's 
done in a series of movements of objects and pointing his granddaughter towards the key to this whole mystery. Um, but we talked about a rehash and a rise of Skywalker element to it um, attached to this. Yeah. I, the moment I knew we were dealing with Dozer again, um, I was just like, Oh, but we solved that problem <laughs> in the first movie. Didn't we like, yeah. I didn't like... fully quite understand how you could bring him back. I don't care. I'm glad it's, I'm glad it gives them an excuse to do a bunch of cool ghost stuff. Um, I just, I was a little puzzled by that, but I didn't really like, it didn't really bother me. Like what else were they going to do really is my question. But I mean, create a new threat, you know, um, it, you know, when they had, when they introduced JK Simmons as Evo Shandor, you're just like, okay, well we didn't see that guy from the first movie. He was just talked about. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe, you know, it'd be him with like a new, uh, like threat attributed to him, but it was still just, you know, he gets off really quickly and then it's a uh, gozer from here, there on out. So and it's cool seeing a Louis wild play gozer, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's just been cool for them to create something. Cause like I said, they took care of gozer. So reintroducing gozer just feels like, okay, well the first movie didn't actually solve anything. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it takes the in, wind out of the sails of the first one. In a sense, though, it it's interesting how it comments on what does happen to the Ghostbusters after everything that goes on. And I have no idea if the second one even plays into the first in, into this one at all. Um, yeah, I was confused because you know you have this movie with uh, you know led by kids because um, again they took like you know someone watched Stranger Things at the season two and was like oh kid ghostbusters that'd be great and added that to this but also like the second one oscar maybe, where, yeah baby oscar where's baby oscar in this? where's baby oscar like that would have been a character that would have made sense to add to this especially since a lot of the elder ghostbusters reappear in it um and then post credits there's even dana yeah um, so I, I i had this feeling that in order to do oscar you needed to get Bill Murray to be more involved and they weren't going to do that. They'd been trying so hard to get him involved in a Ghostbusters movie where he's an actual, where he's returning as Venkman. And it took Jason getting involved and the concept of honoring Harold to finally push him in that direction. So I don't know what it would have meant if you had Oscar in there really. Um, it's kind of like you can either have one or the other. And I mean, like, I frankly don't think we should be picky, <laughs> you know? Well, the um, whole, the whole family lineage is, is so screwed across the board. Like even Egon with his daughter, it's like, you know, he, he has this fractured relationship. We find out that he has a daughter and now, and now grandchildren. And also they're so wrapped up in like that split. It's like, well, doesn't she also have a mother? Like, who is that? Cause it's not Janine. Yeah, that's she talks to I, Janine. Thought that, I thought that's what it was going to be, but then I was just like, oh no, it's she's Janine's just there for a second and then she's gone. Yeah. Um, so, so where's this other person like that never gets referred to at all? It's just bizarre. And then, um, you know, the other post credit sequence with uh Winston, 
brings the Ghostbusters back to New York. So maybe there's a sequel plan where maybe Oscar is a character. Um, I did not see the post-credit sequence. Can you describe it to me? <laughs> oh, we saw the one with Bill Murray and Sigourney yeah, Weaver, yeah, right? We, yeah, we saw that one because uh, because we saw that Sigourney Weaver was in it. And we're just like, wait a minute, hold on. She wasn't in there. And then he just cut to it. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a, there's a final, final one where Janine is talking to Winston. Um, and Winston's like in his uh, corporate high rise, whatever, because he's a multimillionaire now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're having a conversation which I didn't quite follow uh, but it's just it's sort of just talking about like how successful he's become and then it cuts to because you know the movie ends weird with uh, a cutaway to the Ecto-1 crossing one of the bridges in Manhattan yeah uh, but then it re it returns so they're having that conversation and then Winston as Winston's talking about his future plans um, they go back to the firehouse and like he's walking around this deserted firehouse that we know and love. And he uh, directs the Ecto one to pull into the garage. But then I'm like, uh, Ray said that they turned the firehouse into a Starbucks. So how is this possible? <laughs> um, well, maybe he's, maybe he's playing coy is, is the theory there. I guess you could play into. Yeah, um, maybe he's joking, but still like, even if the Starbucks didn't pan out, like, there's no remnants of a Starbucks in there. It's just the classic interior of the firehouse. So, but yeah, he just directs the car in and then it, you know, ends. Um, so I wasn't sure what they were trying to set up. I felt like maybe they do maybe have a trilogy planned out possibly, but so I'm not sure what that was supposed to allude to. I have a I have a question because we've been through several different elements of Ghostbusters being brought back, whether through sequel, uh, reboot, um, or uh, this um, reboot call. Do do we can we can we remember one thing for a second before we go too far into the story plot and structure of this? That first Ghostbusters movie is not meant to be a Star Wars property. That first Ghostbusters movie is meant to be a comedy with ghosts. <laughs> yep. And I'm not and I'm not saying that to denigrate anything by any stretch. I am here to point out though that these movies probably did not there were I don't think there was ever a real intention of a huge franchise at the time that they made this movie, that first movie. And I think Ghostbusters 2 from all indication, there was an even bigger struggle to get that made in certain respects. So I I find it hard, especially with the way people on the internet can act on this stuff, to get too much stock built up into what Ghostbusters plots are supposed to be. Primarily because if I'm going off of just the movies and not the cartoon show and not any you know subsequent iterations these movies are meant to be comedies first and foremost and i feel like people don't want comedies out of these movies anymore i think they want an actual story about hunting ghosts and what i liked about ghostbusters afterlife is that it is a comedy it's not it 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 is intent Uh... on being funny in certain regards does it succeed the same way the first ghostbusters does no not particularly but there are funny moments in this movie. Yeah, um, briefly. I, but, I, I I didn't laugh that much. It was it, it, like a, a very 
much felt like a serious family emotional movie <laughs> to me. No, I, I, I would argue that the interactions with the kids and the interactions with Paul Rudd are rather funny. Like, yeah, they're, they're traditional, like family comedy am- amusing, but this movie is devoid of anything like uh dickless over here. Is that true? Yeah. This man has no dick. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. nearly raunchy at all um, or subversive. Well, regardless of how much it has of what or the other, I do wish that when you come at the Ghostbusters angle, like I, I don't want to rough any feathers, but like if we are talking about an outright comedy, cause like, I agree that this doesn't have the same amount of laughs as the first Ghostbusters, but technically the, the reboot that Paul Feig did was giving you the movie you would have wanted, which was a comedy about hunting ghosts. <laughs> and this one felt like a star Wars reboot in the vein of maintaining certain elements of the Ghostbusters. But one part that I did notice of it, which might be the reason why we're devoid of laughs is number one, we're dealing with kids as Ghostbusters. So it's kind of hard to make a bunch of sex jokes when you've got kids in this movie. Um, For sure. But, but second of all, also there is an attempt to treat this mythology seriously. And as a result, it becomes a little too self-serious. And I don't know if Ghostbusters needs that. But again, I had fun with the movie. I did laugh. I enjoyed the podcast kid. Um, he was he was adorable. Um, I, I thought I loved the little Stay Puffed men killing each other. I thought that was funny. <laughs> I thought that was very hilarious. One of them's in a blender. Um, I I cackled with glee at seeing an actual practical uh 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 gozer of uh, the the dog creature um uh uh eating something inside of the walmart like th- those are things that i enjoyed but i do wish that this movie had been a little bit more romp uh, romp a minute kind of kind of vibe like i, I would have liked a little bit more uh humor injected into more into more situations with this but i think you're trying to balance a bunch of balls in the air that are impossible to balance considering what they had to work with and what expectations they had to work off of based on paul feig's attempt of it i think they did pretty good you know like this could have been a very different outcome yeah like i i think it's like the ghostbusters mythology and like they did such a good job of world building in the first movie. And then with the, you know, everyone being like following the cartoon show as kids, like getting f- more fleshed out there, I guess. Um, it just feels like for years, people just want like a live action version of it where it is taken a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. Cause like how many just one-off jokes can you make about ghost hunting? Um, and there's been plenty of like ghost movies since then that they, they could sort of parody, like, Paranormal Activity, Blair Witch, like, yeah, I think there's some comedy to mind there through these movies. But uh, overall, I think everyone's just been clamoring for like, hey, let's treat the fact like, you know, treat the science of this thing like it's real. And I think you get that in this movie, but at the expense of more laugh a minute stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other thing that holds it back is um, none of the characters really have 
an arc or have a problem that needs to be solved by the end of the movie. Like, yeah, the family is destitute and has to go live on this farm, but they still got a farm to go to. Um, and they never really struggle with acclimating to the town. Like the kids just kind of go to school and there's never really any, any adversity there. Um, so I think, I think Phoebe's on a self-discovery journey that I enjoyed. I guess like she starts out very matter of fact, like science is science and ghosts don't exist, but that's quickly turned on its head. So it's nothing she really, I don't know, struggles with, I think. I think considering I think the, considering that her family history has been hidden from her in several different factors, like it's trying to figure out who your family is, which in a sense is a very, I, I, I mean, Brad, you know me, I'm a sucker for, I'm a sucker for geezer exploitation and grand, grandfather and grandmother stories. And the, you know, watching Egon with his granddaughter, helping him bust a ghost is an image that I was just like, that's adorable. Oh my God, this movie's won my heart it's a nice image, but there's very little setup for her to want that by the end. Like she's never clamoring for like, I never got a sense that she was clamoring on knowing like, where did I come from? You know, why? like she did like, she never seems suspicious that anything's wrong in her family. Mm. So th- there's no payoff to that. It's just like, Oh, well, cool. She found out about it. It's just an addendum to her life. Um, so the scene when she starts, yelling at her mom about how come you're told it just feels like empty you know it's like where's this coming from because you never were suspicious that there's anything wrong in your family before or that anyone was lying to you um or holding pulling anything from you so i never yeah that didn't like resonate with me so like it's it's sentimental to watch it play out at the end but like there was no i didn't feel like there was a strong setup for it, it just kind of felt like it came out of nowhere like oh this is something she cares about i didn't get that gotcha so Mm. um may just be a matter of interpretation but um i mean like i i do feel like i i walked out of the film enjoying enjoying the the time that i had with those characters and with that memory of it I guess at this point, like how I, I'm curious to know how you feel about the way the the remaining three Ghostbusters um appear in this film. It was cool to see him again, but again, it was very much like like they were thrown in to appease the fans. Like I kind of wish the movie was Phoebe unlocking a mystery of like where these people go. And so for a while I was waiting for that, and then all of a sudden it's just resolved with a phone call to Ray where Ray just exposition dumps like what's happened in the past 30 years. And some of it's mm-hmm. like confusing because, you know, he's, he tells uh, Egon to go to hell. And then he explains like, Oh, Egon took all the ghost stuff and went, ran off to Oklahoma and left me here with nothing. And then he shows up later with everything. It's just like, Oh, so I guess Egon didn't really screw you. Mm-hmm. Um, you just had like one less proton pack and the guy who, can fix it all um so that was like oh, okay well and then um you know the rest of the guys were pretty easily like easily um recruitable you know it just felt like again like the rise of skywalker thing where it's like well the fans probably want to see these as odd as it be to see them <laughs> as old as they are wearing the uniforms they they want it there and they'll be happy if they see it so here it is. 
So yeah, and I, mean, I also think it takes away from the kids saving the day because they can't without the old crew. So it's really the like the movie doesn't resolve itself without them. You know. Um. Yeah. I mean, it takes away from their victory. I agree. I, I agree at that part. Um. I'm a sucker for watching those guys back in the suits. Um. At the same time, part of where my frustration with it if i have any because it's it um, believe me it's very little i mean like i said this movie basically gives you what you want and you have a fun time with it and it's shot pretty eric steelberg's work is great in it as the dp but um them showing up only after that encounter with ray i almost feel like this movie is already about two hours just go the full mile give us two and a half hours and give us more more screen time with with murray and hudson or even just hudson i know it's difficult to get murray to do this but you know find a way to flesh that out a little bit better because i uh i did feel like that was a last minute ditch like in a certain world again like i'm not i'm not complaining here but in a in another world you could have had this ending with just egon showing up and none of the other three are involved yeah and in a sense it probably would have been a more powerful movie but i'm glad to you know like i know dan Aykroyd gets the shit kicked out of him at times in the in recent years but i liked watching him as ray again i liked watching him get genuinely pissed about the way the ghostbusters have ended up over the last 30 years like i liked watching him do that so i like watching him too i just felt like it didn't fit with the plot you know it just felt like it was there because fans wanted it there. You know, like you said, Harold Ramis helping her at the end, like that made sense. Cause we set it up at the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I will say though, if I had a complaint about the 2016 ghostbusters, it's that their cameos, the way they did their cameos, Bill Murray's was funny. I thought Dan Aykroyd was absolutely wasted in his cameo personally. I didn't remember his. His was he drops somebody off in a cab and says, I'm a, I ain't afraid of no ghost. And then he drives off. Oh, yeah. Um, and then Ernie Hudson's is kind of adorable because he's supposed to be related to Leslie Jones. Um, but, uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd, along with Harold Ramis, is the creator of this franchise. As it exists, this mm-hmm. is based off of his concept. So. You know, I, I really wish he'd get a little bit more respect. <laughs> in that regard and so technically i think this movie does a better job at honoring dan Aykroyd than the other one did and in a sense i'm very happy about that because you know dan Aykroyd created something that a lot of people really want to see other iterations of so long as it fits their specific vision and that only happens when you have Aykroyd sitting down with ramus to write this thing so and frankly it's more emotionally resonant for Aykroyd as it was probably for Ramus than it was for Bill Murray. Cause this was a movie for him. I don't think it was the same. It doesn't feel like it was the same experience as it was for Ramus and Aykroyd. And so I'm, I was happy to watch those two be honored. The creators of ghostbusters are the ones who are ultimately honored in this movie, which is nice. Yeah. It'd be cool if, you know, if they're going to go forward and create like, you know, I, I can see a world where they can actually fold the, 2016 ghostbusters into this if i could too (laughs) if ernie hudson is creating like franchises of ghostbusters 
mm-hmm. that all exist in the same universe. Like, why can't they just find like a cool ghost story? Like, like look to the Conjuring movies or something, or like what James Wan's done, and like do one of those like a cool ghost story, like where the the legend of the ghost is interesting, and then work that into like a comedic angle of like why like what's funny about that. Mm-hmm. So. You know, because like the first movie with the ghost and everything, like that's a ghost story. The Vigo thing in the second one, like that's its own legend. Like since then, they haven't been able to like find. Uh, I, there's plenty of ghost legends out there. It's like why can't they seem to just pick one and just go from there instead of just making these fan service movies? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of this movie is just like here's the ghost trap again, here's the car again, here's the proton pack again. Here's a Slimer knockoff. <laughs> it's just yeah. voiced by Josh Gad. Um, you know, like, like here's all the stuff you've seen before, just in 2021. I I, I do agree with you because I believe me, I'm I'm my weariness on franchises of all sorts, whether rebooted or continuing, is 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 it can try my it can try my mental patience at times even though i still enjoy these films the amount of them that we have in our presence it it, it, it you know it can get a little bit too overwhelming to where i'm just like i just want to watch a movie about like a couple fighting <laughs> like you know like i don't i don't want to necessarily watch a bunch of ghosts anymore you know what you know what i liked though is that like i don't know all the reasons for reitman wanting to do this movie but I'm glad he did this movie because nepotism aside, you know, if you're a kid, if you're Ivan Reitman's kid and you're on the set or like watching the young Ghostbusters for the first time and you're like, my dad did that. That's like so cool. Like, I'd love to do something like that. You know, it's got to be a cool feeling. And in the grand scheme of directors whose kids go on to direct uh, going back to franchises that they started, I think this is one of the best case scenarios out of that whole scenario happening, you know? Um, Cause we also know where the other ones can lead. And uh, I appreciated what he did with it. You know, it's, it's funny though, to consider this amidst Jason Reitman's filmography is the real thing. Cause we're talking about the Ghostbusters franchise. We forget that this is an Academy award nominated director <laughs> doing this movie. And out of all the films he's done, it is the starkestly, the most starkly different movie he's ever made. Yeah, I think his art house sensibilities definitely help the uh, small town feel of the movie uh, work well. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it, um, it's really jealous, but it's, yeah, he it, it definitely doesn't do the uh, big budget comedy like his dad does. Right. And, and I think it's important to signify that difference because you are looking at two different artists who share similar sensibilities in humor because there are elements of Ivan Raimi's humor or Ivan Reitman's humor in in his son's movies, but they're directed in a different energy. It's not broad. It's character. It's like very inwardly character-based. And so like watching inward character motivations coming out of Ghostbusters was pretty interesting to watch. Um, so yeah, I, I like the movie. I would definitely rewatch it. Um, do I want another one? I don't know. If they do it, that's cool. Like, I'm very happy that people can have some Ghostbusters in their lives. You know? Yeah, I, I think there's plenty of 
places this can still go. Like I said, the the world building of Ghostbusters, like I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. They just need to not be so afraid of what they're of picking one and just rolling with it, right? Because um, it it just seems like they just can't get away from, like if they step outside of the first movie, that they're just going to get destroyed by fans. And... Well, I, I mean, you know, I mean, frankly, Brad. I'm really tired of fans running how these movie properties work. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's frankly, I'm sorry, but it's one thing that something belongs to the fans. It's another thing to start demanding stuff. And I frankly, like, I like that female reboot. (laughs) So uh, I think it's fine. I would have loved more, more adventures with those gals. So I frankly don't, care anymore what the fan community wants at times because this it's 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 a weird form of community uh market research combined with uh corporate mentality that i don't appreciate (laughs) but um thankfully marvel has kind of avoided some of that um but like dc star wars other franchises have have come under this and i frankly don't appreciate it anymore um, I'm happy that this Ghostbusters movie though comes out of a genuine heart uh, from Reitman because if we were going to get a, an iteration that wasn't based off of the Feek reboot, this is this is a more than adequate solution to that. So yeah, <laughs> I think we could go on and on forever on this though. <laughs> yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, so next week, I guess we're going to watch uh, the Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City reboot. So, the... so, do, so do I have to watch the first five now to just finally, finally, after all these years of delaying it, just buckle up for that franchise? Uh, I think you have to play the games for this one because this movie looks exactly like the first game. Oh. It has no connection to the paul ws anderson mm-hmm. yeah clean break no mila jovovich mm. um so uh yeah play the games i guess and because it seems pretty faithful again maybe too faithful thanks to the fans so we'll find out i don't know i i don't know much about mila um sorry it's time i'm tired cool uh thanks corinne and henry for being here Mm -hmm. and uh we'll talk to you next week yeah bye thank you for listening to this episode of real nerds podcast Real Nerds Podcast is a production of Nebulous Visions Multimedia. Thank you to Sparks Mandrill and Plan 9 Studios for our kick-ass theme song. Also, if you're in the Denver area and you're looking for a cool place to see movies, we see them at the Alamo Draft House in Littleton and now also in Sloan's Lake. Thank you to Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics for supplying us with all our comic needs, especially you, Andrew. You know who you are. And a big shout-out to James's mom. I'm giving you an electronic hug that you can feel through the airwaves. Thanks for listening, and have a nice day.